from the leafy streets of Springwood, Ohio, to the barred windows at 1428, we, we are Halloweenies. This is God. All right, we're back on the on Elm Street. Not in Haddonfield, but Springwood, Ohio. And I gotta say, I kinda like this town. Uh, it's a, it's a little creepy. There seems to be a lot of abandoned houses all around and one red door that's outside our Airbnb as we've been joking all along over at 1428 Elm Street. First off, this is Mike Rothman, president and chief of Consequence of Sound and a constant contributor of this uh, podcast, obviously, and also the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast also presented by the Consequence Podcast Network. Unlike the first episode, though, we got a new cast and uh, I'd like to go around and introduce them. I, my, I can't really go around in circles because we're all scattered across the nation. This is uh, this is our new tactic against Freddy Krueger, which hasn't really been explored in the Elm Street universe yet, but we're all around the nation. And let's start in Austin, Texas, and talk to our first two hosts. And you might know one as Dan Caffrey. How are you doing, Dan? Uh, doing really good. I'm excited to have another Austinite, Austonian on the podcast with me. Um, yeah, and sorry, no, I wasn't around for that first episode. So I'm excited to dive into what I think is a, a pretty underrated sequel in the in the Nightmare franchise. Agree, agree. What, what, now, for, for you, what, is, what are some of your first experiences with A Nightmare on Elm Street? Uh, so it's funny. I, I feel like even though Halloween is kind of my series, I feel like Nightmare was the one I heard about more as a little kid. Um, I heard the the one to Freddy's Coming for You uh, nursery rhyme on the playground quite a bit before I ever saw the series. <laughs> I remember there's this one kid in my class who he's like, oh, I made up I made up an extra verse. And so, and this is before I even, I even saw any of the movies and he was like, one, two, Freddy's coming for you. Three, four, better lock your door. Five, six, better get your crucifix. Seven, eight, better stay up late. Nine, 10, never sleep again. 11, 12, better. Ah! Like the idea was that like Freddy attacked him. <laughs> so fucking stupid. Yeah. Um, but see, I remember, I remember this kid posited himself as a horror expert. Um, but yeah, so I heard a lot about it and, um, do you, I don't know if you guys ever read these when you were little. There were these sort of behind-the-scenes books on horror movies that would essentially just, like, summarize them and show some pictures. I had one of those that I read before I ever saw Nightmare, so I kind of knew the plot already. And, um, you know, we did the thing where I rented the first one with a friend when I was, like, 12, I think, and just watched, I think, every single one of them over an entire weekend. I think it's one of the strongest. Like, I like Halloween better as a series just for personal reasons, but I think Nightmare is probably one of the stronger horror franchises ever. I, I think there are way more hits than misses throughout the whole series. I would uh, I would agree. But also, there seems to be someone else there with you. Who do we also have uh, on there? Well, we have Trace. Meryl Streep is in this movie, and you can't convince me otherwise, Thurman. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Love it. Uh, yeah, no. So I'm Trace Thurman. I'm uh, one of the co-hosts of Bloody Disgusting's Horror Queers podcast, and uh, I'm very happy to be here. Very happy to have you. I'm very, very excited. Trace, wh- wh- what are some of your earliest memories with the Nightmare series? I wasn't allowed to watch R-rated movies as a kid, so it wasn't really until I was about 14 or 15 that I even started to watch these movies. But my first memory is actually of a scene in New Nightmare, the sequence when uh, Heather Langenkamp, as Heather Langenkamp, is walking around her room and Freddy jumps out of the closet. That is my first and only memory of this franchise as a child. But um, then once I started getting into like more hardcore horror when I was in high school, um, I, I bought that DVD box set yeah. that had uh, where, where the backs of it were, you know, it was like the, the binding was all Freddy. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so I just kind of worked my way through the whole franchise. You know, I, I, you know, I was 
a late bloomer, I guess you could say, to the genre. So I just started going working my way through a bunch of franchises, and Nightmare was one of the first ones I did because, much like Dan, I feel like I always heard about that one so much. Uh, my dad was really into Halloween, so like he kind of introduced me to that. But this uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, I kind of set out on my own and uh, you know just worked my way through that whole franchise. And uh, it's definitely it's not my favorite horror franchise, but it's up there for sure. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't have as much adoration for some of the sequels after three that most people do. But I still really like it. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something that we kind of touched upon in the first episode for Nightmare is just that there's something about Freddy that elicits that sort of like urban legend, that meta sort of response that's almost similar to the actual movie itself. Speaking of, uh, you know, actually, I've got no seg for that, but uh, I'm feeling a cold. <laughs> I'm up here in Chicago and I'm not the furthest north of the Halloweenies in this episode, though. We have also Dream Warrior in Toronto. Do we have him here? I'm still here. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Good, good. We've crossed country lines. This is amazing. We're, we've gone international. <laughs> Hello. I am Joe Grady Short Shorts Lipset. And as far as I nice. know, Freddie never made it up into Canada. So I feel slightly safer than the rest of you. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't seem to cross over any international lines whatsoever. I mean, I, I guess he only stays in Ohio the whole time, which is kind of what I was trying to like joke at in the beginning. Joe, what was your first, uh, what are some of your earliest experiences with uh, Nightmare on Elm Street? Well, it's funny because even though I knew that this question was coming, I was racking my brain trying to remember the first memory of Freddy that I had. And I don't really have a crystal clear memory or maybe a crystal lake memory. But uh, <laughs> nice. so much like Trace, I I was also a bit of a late bloomer getting into horror. So my sister indoctrinated me, but she began my my horror education with a lot of Clive Barker films. So I watched Candyman and Hellraiser. And it wasn't until after that that I started to dip my toe into the 80s horror franchises. But for me, Freddy was always my favorite of those. Uh, and it was primarily because he talked. So I started, I think, with the original Nightmare, but then I bounced around because I I hadn't heard good things about number two. So I think I jumped straight to Dream Warriors because I wanted to see Nancy back in action. Yeah. And then I worked my way back through and I literally have no recollection of the later films apart from New Nightmare. <laughs> oh, nice. Trace, Joe, you, the two of you run a horror podcast as well, Horror Queers. And could you talk, you know, tell us a little bit about it and just how that came together? You know, what's the latest on the pod? You know, just, you know, plug it away. So we both write for Bloody Disgusting and we were writing independently. Like we didn't really know each other all that much. Mm-hmm. But I would always see that Trace was posting articles where he would reference his big old gayness. So I ended up reaching out to him and said, hey, you know, I think we're maybe the only two queer writers on the site. We should do a monthly column. And that's how Horror Queers was born. So we started in January of 2018 and we were running them on a monthly basis. And then I think we spent the better part of six months talking about potentially doing a podcast. We weren't sure what format that would take. We batted it back and forth. And then we ended up pulling pulling the pin on it in December of last year. And from that, the podcast was born. And now we do that on a weekly basis. Love it. And Trace, what did I miss? <laughs> um, well, I feel like you're making it sound like that. I just love bringing up my queerness in all my articles, which I, I actually do. I'm not going to lie. But um, we do it uh, once a week. And uh, we cover films that either explicitly have queer themes that may implicitly have queer themes or, uh, I mean, we did Swim Fan a couple weeks ago because it's just super campy and has lots of guys in Speedos. So yeah. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily have to have a certain, you know, queerness to it. Although, uh, 
because I think this episode will come out in mid-March. So um, by the time this episode drops, you know, we'll have already done an episode on uh, the Rage Carry 2, where oh. we'll focus on... Yeah, we'll be focusing on the bullying aspect specifically. I mean, I'm sure we'll dive into our own personal histories, but uh, yeah, so it's you know, it, it's been fun. What are your thoughts on just horror in general with with regards to inclusivity? Like, well, it's interesting. So for Women in Horror Month, I've been doing a limited series podcast called XOX Horror, and I've been talking to uh, female or female identifying film critics and. Uh, I've been asking them a similar kind of question, like, how do you feel about the state of the genre and specifically with regard to diversity and inclusivity and thinking about all the different kinds of Me Too movements and Black Lives Matters and that kind of stuff. And I I actually feel like horror has always been a very inclusive uh, mm-hmm. genre, but I think it's become even more so of late, like now that we're actually starting to see more black voices, more female voices, more queer voices, I think the genre is not only better for it, but it's actually far more representative than nearly every other genre that's producing films at the moment. Uh, I I don't have much news. Literally, the only thing I could think of that could even be worth talking about was an article I wrote last night where the TSA found a Freddy glove in Atlanta, which was, I guess, <laughs> top their list of wackiest things, which I thought was kind of cute. But, but I actually have one news item. Ooh. Essentially. Go, yeah, go for it. So Mark Hatton has had a long gestating uh, documentary about the making of this particular film called Scream Queen. And it has been on the back burner for, gosh, it's been, what, four or five years, Trace? Yeah, I, I donated to the Kickstarter back in 2015. Okay, so it's been in the works for quite a long time, and there hasn't been any word. And then I think uh, it's been revealed that it's going to be playing at the Salem Horror Fest in early October. So it's uh, a bit of an interesting bright light for a long gestating film in development. No, seriously, I remember they did a screening of Nightmare Two here in Chicago a few years ago, and he had been he had been talking about trying to get it out at that point, and I think he was taking donations from people too, and. That looked looked pretty grim at the time. So I'm glad it's finally getting out. There's a lot that he still hasn't been able to talk about. And you can kind of tell in, on the Never Sleep documentary that there is a lot that they cut out for sure. Yeah, it was interesting. I just rewatched that in anticipation of this discussion. And I was kind of blown away at how positive everybody's making things seem. And I'm yeah. like, oh, man, that documentary is going to blow the it's, lid right off. This. It really is going to. Because I also watched that segment last night after I watched this the movie. And I was like, there's clearly a lot of bad blood between between Patton and then the writer, uh, yeah. David Chaskin and Jack Children, how, how they all handled it and essentially, well, we'll get into it, but, you know, blaming him for the queerness in the movie. Yeah, oh, mm-hmm. totally. Well, let's get into it. Let's head to Weston Hills Asylum, where we're going to go over the synopsis, the rundown, who directed it, who produced it, and... Bob Shea himself, who has a quite a role in this uh, this this movie, uh, <laughs> we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna head there right now. The fact that we all dreamt about this guy before we ever met doesn't seem to impress anybody. So we go in circles, making minimal progress with maximum effort. You won't make any progress until you recognize your dreams for what they are. And what are they? The byproducts of guilt, psychological scars stemming from. Moral conflicts and overt sexuality. Oh, great. Nass, my dick is killing me. So here's the synopsis for Nightmare 2. Five years have passed since Freddy Krueger 
Robert England, was sent howling back to hell. But now, a new kid on Elm Street is being haunted every night by gruesome visions of the deadly dream stalker. And if his twisted soul takes possession of the boy's body, Freddy will return from the dead to wreak bloody murder and mayhem upon the entire town. When a nightmare on Elm Street made a killing, horror fans shrieked for more. Soon, the diabolic Freddy was resurrected with a vengeance, along with some of the most terrifying special effects ever to splatter the screen. Look for Robert England minus his Freddy face in the opening sequence. He's a real scream. <laughs> um, <laughs> weird, so we were texting about that because I had the same DVD. And, yeah, we were texting that last night. And I love, I love those little zingers at the end of horror synopses. I think what's, what's interesting about this, based on the Never Sleep Again documentary and just looking at the timeline itself, this is very rushed. It came out November 1st, 1985, less than a year after Nightmare 1. They didn't even ask Heather Langenkamp to come back because they had a new story, which I actually do appreciate big time. And Wes Craven slammed the screenplay. He doesn't come back. But Bob Shea, who didn't make a lot of money on that first one because, you know, new line. He was like, well, we got the rights and we're going to make a sequel. Let's get this out. Let's get this going. And we get Nightmare on Elm Street to Freddy's Revenge, which with the exception of Robert England and Bob Shea is a total overhaul, even down to the music, down to the special effects and the makeup. We got director Jack Shoulder. Produced by Rob Shea, as we mentioned. Written by David Chaskin. Let's go. Free reign. It's all, it's all behind the scenes here. I guess I'll bring up Chaskin. Um, I know there's a lot to talk about with him contextually. Um, <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> um, but yeah, he was, he was also, because he was, what, like 31? when And he did a treatment for the script and then got, you know, got the full thing out of it. Um, but I couldn't find a ton. I, I, f- I feel like I found more stuff, I mean, from the documentary and elsewhere about his sort of how things morphed and what he may or may not have put in the script as, as time went on and they cast the thing. But uh, yeah, do you all know anything much about the original, original script? Like just, just sort of like the lead up to all of it? No, all I really know is that, you know, that new line hired him to write the treatment after, because they had a script of his that they optioned that they liked. So, I mean, honestly, it just really seems like they were in such a rush to make a sequel that they just grabbed the first person they could find when Wes Craven wouldn't return. In terms of the behind the scenes shuffles, I, it seems like it was more of a, you know, no pun intended, but a, a nightmare itself. So, well, and Wes Craven has this tendency too, because Scream 2 was the same way. Scream 2 was rushed into production. The script leaked online. They were doing reshoots and rewrites like during the movie, and it came out less than a year after the first Scream. Yeah. But that, but that also worked out, because Scream 2 is great. This was a huge hit. I mean, it, was, it, it came out, made more money than the first one did. Mm-hmm. Critically, it wasn't too derided either, but this was always the black sheep of the franchise. Like even later on in the mythology, they don't even reference a lot of the incidents that happen in this at all, really. I mean, it almost seems like Dream Warriors just picks up and writes off where it goes. And I don't believe Freddy, this idea of, you know, using someone as a cipher to kind of come through is ever really used again. I mean, kind of in part five with, with a child, baby, but yeah, yeah that's well, the, what the, I was thinking. Yeah. The, the thing that's, that stands out for me about this movie is, um, how everyone kind of sees Freddy. He almost becomes like a creature from the Black Lagoon or like a Frankenstein or something, just this kind of monster running around, which we don't really get. I feel like in all the other movies, it's it's this case of people not being believed and only a select few get to see them. But in this, he's like seen by the whole town, which which kind of makes it this, this weird anomaly out of all the Nightmare movies for me. Yeah, I mean, I, I would think that Nancy's lack of involvement would be disappointing to any. I mean, for me, when I first watched it, I, I knew what it, what it was going to be, but mm-hmm. I was very much like, I... like you make this connection with the final girl, you want to follow Nancy's story. Whereas with this, it's like, I guess we're following Freddie, but then the movie also disregards 
all the rules that the first movie set up. I remember like like watching this the first time in the pool scene. I was like, wait, what's happening? How is this working? <laughs> yeah, like everyone sees him all. It's a, it seriously felt like oh, it's like creature from the Black Lagoon. That's what, that's what it felt like. That's not bad necessarily. Just as yeah, she's different than the rest of the movie. So I could see how that that would be disappointing maybe to to fans. I think particularly too because Nancy is. I mean, I don't know how her character was received back in the day. But nowadays, you know, when you talk about the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, you talk about Freddy, but you're also talking about Nancy. Like, she's one of the most beloved final girls in, I think, all of slasher history. Mm -hmm. It's like her, Jamie Lee Curtis, and Sydney. Yeah. Yeah. There seems to be this insistency of always bringing back main characters. So I do applaud films or franchises when they actually pivot and they introduce new heroes. So they try to attempt to do new heroes or do some sort of new storyline, which, you know, I mean, I, I can I can respect the 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 risks, the creative risks this movie takes. However, even without knowing that Jack Shoulder, the director, doesn't like the first movie, which he says in the documentary, yeah, which is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> there is definitely um, a lack of respect for mm-hmm. the first movie that's evident on screen. And I think I think. I think that can be felt and in addition to just not having nancy which again isn't the film's biggest problem it which to be clear i do like this movie it's not one of my favorites but i do think there's a lot of good ideas on display here that may not fully be executed the best way mm-hmm. but i do think that that lack of respect for the first movie can be felt and if you're a huge fan of that first one walking into this it, it i'm not saying it's as far as where you'll feel insulted by it but it definitely feels like you, like you as a fan were disregarded yeah and it's also abrasive you know i, mm-hmm. I like one of the things i really noticed just revisiting this and and i guess this has kind of always been there subconsciously is that I, i'm actually kind of frightened by this movie and i I use that with an asterisk because there's something about this that's it's it's not a fun watch. You know, it's a very torturous no. watch that you don't really get the sort of Craven-esque connections that you would get in all of his other movies, especially in Dream Warriors, where the characters seem to be like almost like a team working together. There's there, It just seems as if everyone's on their own. Also, even just the way that uh, Springwood is presented, everything's hot, it's muggy. Everyone's fucking sweating left and right. Like it feels like the whole town has become a boiler. Even when they're like playing baseball, the fucking grass is like dead and deserted and dried his room there's just an uncomfortability to this movie well and also too i think just the the type of horror we're getting it's it's almost like body horror for most of it it's like him it's like him on his own and all this freaky stuff happening which maybe isn't as uh as fun as some of the more surreal scares that we get in the first one and then especially in uh dream warriors later like the 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 dream sequences aren't elaborate there's more it's more just kind of gross you know which once again it's it's affecting but yeah it's not it's not the most fun nightmare movie (laughs) i think out of all of them well no and the other weird thing is that in the never sleep again documentary they talk about how they wanted to make freddie more verbose and it kind of seems like they're equating him speaking with him telling jokes but there's nothing funny about this movie like there's no laughs to be had in this film at all no not Mm -hmm. at all like even in like like the only thing i think is even funny is just because it just looks funny is when he's just standing there outside like with Lisa and he just like throws her plate for no reason like that's I mean but that's not even like well that's no, just I like mean, an awkward <laughs> scene there are funny things in this movie but they are not intentionally funny <laughs> yes that's yeah. a very important point <laughs> no totally totally there doesn't seem to be any sort of trust nobody really other than the, with the exception of Lisa really gets the stakes that are here which makes it in turn kind of scarier like the parents who seem to be more involved in this movie than any of the other Elm Street movies are so aloof. 
proof. And they even admit <laughs> that like, oh yeah, well, why do you think I got the house after five years? Like for me, it adds a lot to this film. I don't know if it necessarily makes a great Nightmare on Elm Street movie, but it does make it frightening, especially more than the other entries for sure for me. I think the the film's runtime actually contributes to, because I was watching, I was like, fuck, this is 85 minutes. But yeah. then after, without credits, it's like 82 minutes. And so it feels like things happen very quickly in this mm -hmm. movie and that I think hurts it in a way. Yeah. Yeah. It's very abrupt in a lot of ways. I was telling Trace last night as we were watching it, not together. <laughs> um, <laughs> we do that a lot though, where we watch movies and we like tweet each other messages as we're watching it. <laughs> oh yeah. That's always fun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I was telling him that I, I feel like this movie needs a good five to 10 minutes right off the top. Like it feels as though the opening has actually been chopped because when did this family move in? When did Jesse meet all these people? You know, when did the night, begin there's no impetus like it just opens and it's already happening and in some ways the horror can come from that unsettling place where you feel disconnected yeah but it feels too often i think in this film like there are scenes missing or there's gaps in the narrative that they're they're jarring in that way mm -hmm. well and he he does feel very close to everyone for having just well i'm assuming he just moved to town not that he already lived in town and moved houses right yeah that's I think, what we're led to believe yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And yeah, and like he's already like super close with Lisa and quote unquote buddies with Rod. Um, I get a Ron. Sorry, not Rod. And also the, the ending like is super abrupt. And Jesse's a non-player in it because he's not there. I mean, the, the final boy in this movie doesn't have any agency for the climax because he's absent. Yeah. Whereas then you have Lisa that emerges as <laughs> the final girl, kind of, I guess, and saves him with the power of love. And it just, <laughs> it just, or friendship, you know, if you want to view him as gay, which I think most people do, but it, yeah, it, I think, yeah, the opening and the end the closing of this movie, just, they feel very underdeveloped. Yeah. Yeah. And even so, like, I mean, they're literally characters that are supposed to be like major supporting characters in this, like Lisa's friend. She like pops up and you're like, the oh, yeah, one? yeah. Or maybe it, it was Cheryl. Carrie? Oh, Cheryl. I think it's Carrie. But yeah, she's like, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah like, you know, oh, Carrie. She's the one who gets, uh, who gets scared at the end, right? Yeah. Yeah. School bus or, yeah. Which is a random person for that to happen to. I was like, wait, who is that? <laughs> well, it's like, oh, yeah, she's her friend. <laughs> her only purpose in this movie is to ask Lisa if she's getting laid. I think that's the only line <laughs> she has. She is the thirstiest girl in school. <laughs> So clearly the screenplay we got some issues with. Um, yeah. I, I do think that some of the setups and the scenarios that Chaskin devises are very inventive and surreal in, in ways that seem a little bit more visceral than the previous one, which seems almost ornate by a comparison. It doesn't seem as if there's any blurred lines between the dreams and reality. You know, no. like, you know, there are a lot of theories that the first one is just a whole dream. Like, you, you know, Nancy is just dreaming the entire movie. I think mm -hmm. you could easily make that argument for this one, that the entire thing is just Jesse's dream just by the fact that literally everything is happening in real life also. Well, I think so. That's actually some of my favorite parts, though, of this franchise is when you're not 100% yeah. sure if it's a dream or if it's real. And this movie does that. But yeah. the problem is, I don't think it's in, I don't think it's intentional. I think that like when it's trying to like give you this nightmare, it's like it's because they don't care. Yeah. And they're just like, oh, let's just throw some crazy shit in there. Although I did like the melting records. stuff. That was really cool. Yeah. I mean, even like Craven kind of slams them for it. 
in that documentary saying like it kind of threw away the rule book that I had set up in the first one, you know, with especially with that pull sequence that they reference. And even like Robert England expresses his disappointment um, in the documentary, admitting that like while they were shooting, he was like, this doesn't feel like what it should be. Like I should my character shouldn't be doing these things. You know, which, which is kind of crazy to me because I constantly find myself waking up in leather bars. So this really <laughs> rang true to me. <laughs> well, is the leather bar sequence, is that supposed to, I thought that that wasn't a dream, but maybe. No, no it's, it's no, it is not a, it's not no. a dream. No, no, no right. No. That's what I thought, which is so weird. Cause like, why would he, I guess he goes looking for guidance and then the coach taking him and, uh, uh, making him do exercises and yeah, all that. It's weird. It feels like a dream, but that's supposed to be literal, right? I, I think it really no. does. It feels like sleepwalking, right? Where he he wanders off, and you're kind of like, oh wow, this is the weirdest sexual dream. <laughs> yeah. But then it cuts to him running laps at the gym, and you're like, oh, that apparently was real life. That makes well, no sense at all. It ties. I mean, I don't know if y'all have this experience. Like I was. Well, I mean, Dan, you might actually. But um, I, I was a theater kid in high school, and I actually still have the occasional nightmare about like being on stage and not knowing my lines or not knowing the oh, all the time the musical yeah. number. And so it, this could have played into that very well. But yeah, it, it very much is real life, and that's why when the showerheads start raining blood, it's just like, wait, <laughs> this is real life, though. Yeah, <laughs> what is going on? Yeah, I mean, yeah, because there's no visual signifier to connote between dreams in real life, which is something that the first film does so well. And in this film, you're like, yeah, I think that's why the argument could be made. Oh, is this all just a dream? Because there's no difference between what's meant to be real life and what's fake. I agree. Yeah. In the end, it does play into a lot of the scares itself because it makes you do feel discombobulated. But at the same time, like it is frustrating when you're trying to like look at it as in the context of the franchise itself because you know this freddy seems so separate from the other ones and his abilities to do what he can i mean like based on the stuff that he's able to do in this movie it almost kind of like nullifies everything he does in the later sequels because he's so goddamn powerful in this you know and like it's like well you know mm -hmm. if you do that here why the hell can't he do this and you know for three or four or whatever but i yeah i just don't think a lot of them knew what they were doing i mean even the title freddy's revenge revenge for what yeah like, anything, <laughs> the first one should be freddy's revenge because he is getting revenge on the children of elm street but this yeah. one it's like he's just trying to get inside this teenage boy yeah and also even just if you look at the ending at a, at a, on a literal level from the first one like he did get his revenge so it's like yeah <laughs> like, but does anyone else have any other uh, thoughts on behind the scenes i don't think so no yeah? i don't think i know all right. Well, if that's the case, then I'd like to say, uh, Oh, Carlos, lend me your ear. No! All right. So this is a new composer. I actually really like Christopher Young's compositions mm -hmm, for too. this movie. I think they're really, really, really frightening. That sort of clanging that keeps coming. It's just, again, visceral. It's just very gripping and in, in, in a way that doesn't seem, um, cozy like, uh, the previous score in the, the original one would. Yeah, I feel I almost feel like the score in this one's a lot more minimal than the first one, um, which once again does kind of line up with like I was saying the more solitary horror of it. Um, us not getting as many big set pieces. Um, you know what's funny is I feel like we actually don't get the one two Freddy's coming for you motif quite as much 
But I don't know, that, that feels appropriate for the movie. I mean, the only time you really see it is that, that little girl jump roping in the bedroom. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm here for it. I don't think it's as memorable like, or like iconic, but I, I do think it fits the more low-key uh, aspects of the movie. I agree. Um, I, I actually think it's not as iconic as the first one because it doesn't have ne- like as many memorable beats to it. You know, like you, yeah. the first one you have the da, 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 da. But this one, it's just, yeah, it's a lot of sounds. But um, I think it kind of works in, in being more subtle. And I like Christopher Young scores a lot. I mean, he did Hellraiser. He did Drag Me to Hell, Copycat, and even mm-hmm. the Grudge remake. So he knows his horror. I mean, of course, this is before all that, but I, th- I think it works very well. Yeah. So I'm not a big score person, so I, I typically don't even take notice of them unless they're really bombastic. And often that means that they're pulling me out of the film because they're too much. Um, but one of the things that I really appreciated, particularly in one scene, is when Coach Snyder is being dragged into the showers provocatively. Uh, there's a really interesting, like, almost like a a drippy clang that goes. And I found that it was really memorable for mounting the tension and, and uh, it worked well with the sound design of the, all the exploding balls. So Mm -hmm. that was my takeaway. No, I, I, balls everywhere. (laughs) Yeah. All the ball, God, the, the visual imagery in this movie, which by the way, it went from Charles Bernstein who did the first one, which I don't know why he didn't come back. I mean, I guess maybe it was because Wes wasn't doing it anymore. I mean, he, he did have a shitload of television movies in 1985 that he was working on these are all his films he did um <laughs> he actually didn't do one cinema theatrical release in 1985 which is interesting after nightmare on elm street he did secret weapons malice in wonderland generation covenant the long hot summer chase so clearly he had his hands tied so i imagine because this was so like rushed and such a 180 he was just like look i you know i, I can't do this sorry find someone else with christopher young yeah minimalism is key in this and i think that it remind it does remind me of a certain x-files episode that i want to say it's the squeeze episode where it has like the dung 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 it has just these little strokes that when they come into this film it really does add into like the the sort of paranoia that jesse's experiencing so i know i was a i was a big fan here and i did not realize how like prolific he was like good god like he went on to do like hellraiser right after this because prior to this he didn't really have much experience so this pretty much was his like big break um because before this he had done like the dorm that drip blood which i've never even heard of (laughs) um high point haven't heard that one the oasis the power avenging angel oh he did defcon 4 but yeah i like i don't know what that is yeah i have no idea either but but after this it's all classics it is crazy how many classics he got because he did nightmare 2 probably because it's a huge blockbuster success like after this he did um getting even but not with dad he did trick-or-treat in 86 invasion (laughs) from mars in 86 then he did hellraiser then he did flowers in the attic he did Hellraiser 2, so that franchise knew how to keep its composer. And Fly 2, which, if I recall, okay. is, is not too bad. But um, then the Dark Half. I mean, like, it's it's unreal, this the, this guy's... Yeah, I mean, like, you already mentioned all the stuff that he had done, but, like, it's pretty mm-hmm. excessive, and he's still working up to... Like, he's going to do doing the next Pet Cemetery. So, Ooh. So that's cool. So, hey, Christopher Young, um, <laughs> hardly a nightmare, in, in my opinion. So... Um, what, what about, uh, <laughs> outside the score, what about some of the uh, the... <laughs> The pop songs, the the great pop uh, hits that we hear in the background. I mean, but. I mean, we can talk about the dance scene now if you yeah, want. I, I think we should. Clearly, <laughs> let's do it. Yeah. I think we talk about this. Yeah. I don't even know where to begin. I mean, like, it, I feel, I honestly think it's fine. It's really funny. I think it's a good character building moment for Jesse. But you know, Patton doesn't like it, and yeah. it's 
sad, but it does come across as really gay. And I hate saying that because it's it's like a negative connotation, but it's just like it's very flamboyant. But it's also kind of I like it because it's not something you would see a male character doing in a movie back then. But they were trying to homage risky business and it just kind of doesn't really work. And that. I guess maybe Patton doesn't have the gravitas that Tom Cruise had in the eighties. It just, it doesn't fully come across as sexy. It comes across more as goofy. Yeah. Well, I think he, so in the documentary, he talks about how he was trying to put it off for as long as possible. And I think some of that awkwardness translates poorly onto screen. I, I actually think it's a lot of fun. I think it's kind of cheesy in the right ways for an eighties film, but I imagine on a first viewing, you would look at it and be like, What's with all the crotch shots on this? Yeah. I got to say, too, Mike, you're going to hate me for this. So I've never seen Risky Business as a full film, but (laughs) I got I've been on a Bob Seger kick lately. So I'm like, oh, I should watch this old time rock and roll scene that's like iconic in Risky Business. And I watch that, and I feel like even that doesn't hold up very well. I don't know. (laughs) It feels weird and kind of creepy. I don't know if you all feel the same way. No, it's. It's just all those ladies. Yeah, it's like a hard sell, I think, to like have these like teenagers dancing. What what you mean like you're saying, it's kind of sad because a teenager dancing by themselves in their room is probably a very accurate thing that most teenagers have done, regardless of their sexuality or whatever else. But I think it's like you were saying that the discomfort the actor has, you know, like he just doesn't seem he I don't know, he seems like awkward and it's not very charismatic. And then given the things he said later about about feeling uncomfortable in the making of this film and then the screenplay, I think some of that comes across in the scene a little bit so maybe maybe that's why it makes it a hard watch out did you guys get kind of squirmy watching i was just like Ugh. i i disagree i actually think that he does a fine job in the dancing scene it seems more natural than the way he was describing it but i mean yeah like i just think it was like i don't know these dan- for risky business it's just a bunch of ladies silking their panties watching tom cruise run around <laughs> in his underwear like i mean they say it in scream right that when uh, tatum rents it she's like oh you pause at the right moment you can see his penis which is another well scene. that's actually all the right moves not risky business oh shit sorry guys my, my 80s cruise like <laughs> that is horror i hate cocktail i hate top gun i hate all that shit so and, that's sorry. okay yeah i don't like to- if I, you, I don't you want like to talk gun. about movie penises trace will get you every time so. <laughs> <laughs> i've actually never seen all the right moves i just know scream line for line Gosh, I always thought it was Top Gun that they were talking about, too. <laughs> that, that is a PG movie. Yeah, that is a way too PG movie for that. But uh, my problem with the scene is that I just don't think the song is very good. Um, you know, oh, like I disagree. Like, I, I just, <laughs> oh, really? I, I, it's Fonda Ray. I, I'm just not, I think that, like, you know, this is, a, this is a series that is, for me, if there's anything hit or miss, it's the songs they use. So, like, a lot of the soundtrack selections in, these, in this series alone are probably going to be like, eh. <laughs> Um, do you like anything which we'll get to in oh well yeah i mean that's one of my favorite songs of all time but i but just this one i I don't know i felt like it could have been like given all the posters that they have in all these fucking movies like you had the police in the first one you get like simple minds in this one you get like the stray cats like uh, give me a simple mind he he literally has a poster for simple minds in his room but Uh, they've they've got no money that's true (laughs) remember bob (laughs) shay is broke as fuck (laughs) he can't afford any real music yeah that is a good point that is a good point like how Joe doesn't pay attention to the score, I never pay attention to the actual songs in a movie. So, I mean, I couldn't even tell you what the song was during the dance scene, but I liked it. <laughs> you mentioned charming. And and I think like, yeah, you yeah. know, I think it is. I mean, I definitely, you know, in a movie that's so cynical and dark, I, I feel like it is kind of like a moment of levity that 
you don't really get anywhere else in the film. I think that's maybe one of the reasons why it stands out so much too. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, other than that, like you're, you're, you hit the nail right in the head. Like there is not a lot of notable music in this movie. They were totally broke. Rick Schaefer, uh, the Reds is in it. So I, I think they were, I think, I believe the Reds were in maybe Manhunter soundtrack uh, a year later, but not really many notable other artists that are on it. Like Bob, Bobby Orlando, I, that doesn't ring a bell for me for some reason. Um, <laughs> this isn't the Black Panther soundtrack no it's not <laughs> yeah. yeah uh peter barden's uh jan eliasson uh or no skagarak i can't even say uh the great skagarak it's just so are funny these all real people these are all yeah, real. i don't know what this means <laughs> this is all greek harry revel like this is crazy so like all the artists that they actually have on the wall were probably like they're like well these are the ones that we wish we could get <laughs> uh here's what we did get but yeah not not the greatest soundtrack um uh, i would say but do love the score so Anything else in the music? Not for me. No music? All right. Well, I'm getting a little sleepy, and I'm kind of hearing I'm hearing a nursery rhyme. And that nursery rhyme goes... So, in this section, we are going to be talking about the man himself, Freddy Krueger. Freddy Krueger. Here's a hot take. I think this is the scariest you get Freddy Krueger in the entire series. Am I alone here? Uh, For me, you're not wrong, because I think in the first film, you get so little of him that He's really more of a specter. And then after this, you're definitely deep into one-liner Freddy. So he becomes a bit more satirical and comedic. So this, this to me is a good approximation. I just don't love the way that he looks. Oh, yeah. They changed the makeup for this one too, right? They said they, said they wanted to have something that was more form-fitting to his face. So he doesn't look quite as... Uh, I think quite looks as like scarred up as, as he does in the first one. Well, and like you said, like they didn't have the notes, so they didn't have anything to go off of. So they made, they made his makeup from scratch. And I think the makeup guy even says in never sleep again, like I didn't know what to do. So <laughs> I, I just looked at the first movie and tried to emulate it, but like with something different, like his ears have this weird thing where it's like, they're like connected to his head in this yeah. one. It's a little, it's jarring. And I do think this is the darkest Freddy has been in the entire series. I actually think he's scarier in the first one because of his lack of screen time that Joe mentions. But and maybe I'm just it's just because it was the first one that I, I like, saw pieces of. But I actually think he's at his scariest in New Nightmare, though, mm. whether mm. whether whether you view that as Freddy or, you know, the demonic entity that is portraying Freddy is up to you. But I don't think he's the scariest here, but I definitely think he is like they're trying to make him as like as scary as possible in this movie. Yeah, I, I do think he's I, I, I think he's at his. It's worse. This isn't the scariest movie to me, but I do think Freddy's as scariest here outside of the nightmare. Um, because like you're saying, we had, I feel like the welcome to primetime bitch in three is probably where we get into like wisecracking Freddy, where he's not really doing that here. <laughs> the, the line I actually laughed at though is where, uh, Jesse screams help. And then Freddy says, help yourself fucker. Like, like, that's <laughs> oh, kind of, uh, I, I good have that line. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like, and also too, I, I could be wrong, but does his, uh, would you say Robert England's voice is a little bit higher in the in the other movies? Like I feel like it's like really low and gravelly here, and he's he's very menacing. So um, in the first one it is, in the first one it's his normal voice, but this one it's like 
it sounds a lot deeper and angrier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that kind of freaks me. And also, too, because most of what we get from Freddy here, like I said before, it's not so much the surreal stuff. It's him, like, bursting out of people and just, just like, kind of just killing people with his hands and throwing them into the pool. Like, he, he seems like much more of a... A practical force of nature so I, I think i think that's why i would say he's he's maybe at his his scariest in this one so i, I would agree with you mike well and this one has that that shot though of him running around the pool which it, much like in the first movie when he's chasing nancy through the house there's something about watching a killer with, with like a long shot just kind of stumbling around obstacles that's just inherently not scary to me mm-hmm. so like that pool scene comes across as funnier even though it's it is kind of, I guess, visually jarring, but it's just, again, seeing him just kind of jog around like with his hands up in the air going booga booga is, <laughs> it's a little goofy. Yeah. I would agree with the point about the long shot, but then when you, and sorry if we're overstepping and now going into too many specifics, but I love the part where random party goer guy comes out and tries to talk him down. To me, that's actually one of the tensest moments in this entire film because like all I could do was be like, guy no what are you doing like yeah. don't don't be an idiot this guy has a fucking claw for a hand he is going to rip your face off i imagine i think the kid does survive which makes me think like hey his survival tactics uh ended up working but for for me it's the it's it's when you see his eyes you know and mm. and, and i think they they, they discussed this in the documentary too about how the first one just had robert england's natural eyes which i think he has green eyes um yep. and in this one they're just like almost like these like kind of hollowed out sort of even his sockets look whiter and then his eyes are just this like weird black, like brown sort of quality. And the way that his eyes like ignite with the fire and even when um, they use the effect where he's like bursting through Jesse, there's just something so like terrifying about the way it like it pops up and the way he sees because i mean so much of it is him watching uh, like everyone all his victims and just that that presence of his stare there's something about it in this film versus the other ones that that just is unnerving to me and i think a lot of it also is the bony effects they gave to his face because that was another thing that they they kind of changed in this one is that they made um i guess his cheekbones a little bit more pronounced so that you'd have like more of a it almost looks like his bones are like kind of seeping through some of the burnt flesh, which I really love. I li- I think that's like really, really unnerving too, because you, for- you forget that he's actually like a human being before. So it is like, it's almost like this rotten corpse that's been like in hell the entire time. Well, he's very wet. He's very wet in this movie. Yeah. I actually, that look really works because it is very disgusting. So as Joe mentioned earlier about the, the profusive sweat yeah. <laughs> that's on on Jesse this whole time, Spreddy is also wet all the time. And I remember like watching last night. I was like, this is gross. Yeah. It seems like everyone is wet in this movie. I mean, it's even yeah. when, even when they're <laughs> the like, coach. yeah, but like, and I don't think this is something they really utilize a lot in the other movies, probably because it's a pain in the ass when you have to do reshoots and all, but there's perspiration on everyone. And it, it does just feel like the entire town has become this like boiler room. These are the notes I had for specifically the heat. You get like the boiling sun that comes down. You get the stuffy bus, the sweaty hair, broken AC, eggs, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because the cooking eggs on the frying pan, um, the desert bus, the, even, the baseball field is dry and dead. There are melted objects in the bedroom, exploding birds also because of the heat. Uh, <laughs> the source, of, it seems like the source of the, the, the heat is kind of like this like pressure and rage, like boiling side of Jesse, but also like the sort of anger to Freddie. I, I, I don't know. It's, it's weird because I guess if we're going to be talking about Freddie right now, we guess we're going to have to kind of talk about Jesse too, because Jesse and him are pretty much intrinsically tied here. What do you feel Freddie represents in this movie? I, I think, um, I mean, you could eat, 
because Joe and I wrote an article about this back in November, and I, I kind of, I played devil's advocate for a bit because it's kind of like, do you view Freddie as as Jesse's burgeoning, you know, latent homosexuality, mm-hmm. uh, or do you view it as like a representation of the closet or something like that? And I think you can view it both ways, but because of the ending of the movie and how it is Lisa's, you know, love that saves him, I would argue that, and maybe not intentionally, but that Freddie probably is a representation of Jesse's homosexuality mm-hmm. and that he's fighting it and rejecting it for the whole movie. And that kind of taints my image of the film just because it is like, well, you know, oh, she turned him straight. But then I also think you can view it as, oh, because they, they they don't ever really get sexual. And even when they try to get sexual in the movie, you know, he he freddies out. But I don't know. It, I, I, I'm leaning more towards Freddy is, is gayness. That is what he is in this movie. That, that's how I read it also. Um, well, yeah, especially, too. Yeah, and that, that was where I had it look. I think this was the first time I watched the movie I mean, the gayness thing has always been a thing with this movie, but I think it's the first time I rewatched it since watching the documentary. And like, um, Mike, you remember you and I went to we went to see it when there was like a talk back with the main actor afterwards. Remember? At, at, oh yeah, yeah, that was that was yeah. the screening. Yeah, it was like fucking freezing in there. <laughs> and I remember, I, and we left. I can't remember if you did. I left early because we'd watched the thing, and then that came on, and we the talk back was beforehand, and then I was like, it's too cold. So th- this was the first time I had watched it, sort of after hearing his thoughts and all that, and. Yeah, the, I think I think where it becomes kind of an issue is at the end where like, oh, all he needs is like the love of a woman and he won't be gay anymore. You know, although then arguably, I guess Freddie's hand comes out at the end, but it still does seem like it's if, if we are looking at Freddie Krueger being latent homosexuality, then I feel like the movie sort of frames it as being a negative thing, whether yeah. whether the filmmakers intended that or not, which we'll get that a little bit. But I think like I think part of it, I think the context around the movie makes it really muddy in a way that becomes kind of problematic uh, towards the end of it. Well, and Joe, so what are your thoughts? I think I think you disagree with me, but I, I also have another reading of it. But what is what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, so Trace and I like to play devil's advocate for each other because we frequently find it more interesting to try to diversify our opinions. I am more inclined to read it as Freddie as an agent of homosexuality. And it's all about Jesse's struggle to either come to the realization that he is a gay man and then, you know, the reading at the end of the film complicates that notion and could be interpreted as anti-gay, which is unfortunate and also very much in keeping with 80s films, if we're being honest. Mm -hmm. But I like to contrast the relationship with the parents and then what Freddie represents. So I don't want to go too, too far down that route. But I, I do think that there's interesting ways to both read Freddie in, I guess, a number of different kinds of ways. So I think yeah, I'm going to posit this and, like, you know, maybe people can read into it or not. If you view Freddie as a representation of Jesse's internalized homophobia as the negative side of how he views his own queerness. And then you view the end of the movie as, okay, Lisa is helping him come to terms with his homosexuality. So he does get rid of Freddie, which isn't necessarily his homosexuality, but his own homophobia. Yeah. And then he comes out basically when he, you know, breaks out of that Freddie husk at the end of the movie. If you take the, the actual, some of the lines that are in the bus at the end, it's very weird and how they juxtapose against the, the kind of themes that they were building towards. Like at one point he's like, I can't believe it's all over. And then she's like, you know, let's not talk about it. Let's not talk about it. Like Lisa, it's, so it's almost like he's suppressing uh, yeah. it again. And so it's odd. Like I, I which is I don't, why it's got a burst out of carry. Yeah. You can't deal with that return of the repressed. It will always end up coming back. Yeah. 
Yeah, which is kind of the commentary of the first one in the, in the sense of fear. One of the arguments I was making in the first one, because there's a lot of debate on the podcast last last episode about the ending of the movie, where people think if it's not effective and they don't, they kind of side with either Bob Shea or Wes Craven, because Wes Craven hates the ending and Bob Shea wanted that like last the uh, you know punch. But I I was arguing the same way that like. I think that it's supposed to represent the idea of fear that like, yeah, you could turn away from it, but it's always just going to kind of bubble up again and get you um, down the road. Like you can't necessarily destroy it. It's almost like matter in a way. And I wonder if that's kind of like the similar sort of theme that they're kind of tackling here. But at the same time, that's like trying to suppose that this script in which its screenwriter denied <laughs> the thematic, uh, you know, implications that he's discussing about, he's, you know, he denied it for like decades until finally coming around to it when it seemed like a safe and appropriate time to do it yeah so, let's be mindful about giving david jaskin too much credit exactly well yeah, yeah. The, so, <laughs> something i was gonna ask i mean I, I think the fact that we're all kind of debating this shows that the movie maybe was flirting with all this in a way that wasn't very responsible now i mean i think if david Ch- chaskin chaskin whatever was maybe a little bit more sensitive and, and treated more with more intelligence you could get like a really good message that's very complicated and doesn't come down either way. You know what I mean? But I think just given what we know about his own comments around the movie and what he eventually started saying, I think it just, for me, it feels like they never figured it out in a, or, or even examined it in a way that was going to be helpful rather than antagonistic. Well, well and put it into context too, with the time, this is 1985. This is the height of the AIDS crisis right mm-hmm. now. So like gay panic yeah. and like, you know, anti-queer movements are like on the rise. They're at their peak right now. So I'm always really puzzled when they're like, we didn't know it was gay. We didn't know what we were doing, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, but I don't, I mean, I guess it's a miracle that it didn't come out more homophobic than it does. If, if you even think it comes out as homophobic in this movie, but the fact that it was made at that particular point in time is always kind of shocking to me. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting. One of the more interesting things in the documentary to me is how they try to retcon it and say, you know, this is post AIDS. And I'm like, huh. no, it's right in the middle of the fucking AIDS crisis. <laughs> yeah, like, it is at the height of it. Yeah. The, the, the sort of rewriting. And that was actually like frustrating me to no end, especially after reading, you know, like I, again, I mentioned earlier, but like BuzzFeed News had this amazing, it's called The Nightmare Behind the Gayest Horror Film Ever Made. And it's like a is really. That, is that Lewis Peitzman's article? Do you know? Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, as I, Lewis Peitzman is really big on queer horror. So that's good. Yeah. It, it's an unbelievable like article. Like it's just so in depth and it actually has far more than anything I've seen in terms of like interviews on the actual movie. And Mark Patton goes really deep and he really talks about, you know, where he was in his own career. And you you could also see how maybe, you know, there were a lot of people behind the scenes that were trying to help him. There was a scene where like Freddie was supposed to put his like, you know, the blade in his mouth. And oh, yeah, it was instead of caressing his face in the beginning, he was going like, to stick it in his mouth and have him, have him suck it. Yeah. Yeah. Which is and like and like, you know, Patton, who was trying to build a career at, the, at the, this point, was just like, I can't do this. You know, and so finally, like they, they told like, you know, Robert England, like, all right, we're not going to do this. And, you know, England was like, oh, that's totally fine. And so there were a lot of people behind the scenes that were trying to also, you know, preserve the idea that, you know, this this person wasn't like didn't want to have this all out there for the sake of his own career obviously doesn't help that after this after the reviews start coming out and i believe it was in the observer that maybe had the first review that basically you know declared it as the gayest horror film ever you know you had david chaskin who's like well it wasn't my intentions and then you have everyone in the the studio that's removing themselves and literally blaming it on Patton at that point so i guess yeah which is 
fucking awful. Well, yeah. is there anything? I mean, I I know that the screenwriter's comments about about his intentions with the movie haven't really quite lined up over the years. But and I'm just interested in, uh, in all of your respective takes on. Do you feel like he? He found out about uh, Patton's sexuality and then kind of wrote in the script, like, is he tormenting him? Is he making fun of him? Or is he actually trying to be sympathetic and it's just misguided? Like, I, I don't know. Do you guys have any, like, strong feelings about that either way, given based on his own comments? Well, from what I can remember of the article, I think there's another retconning that's going on in the documentary, which is that I don't believe that Mark Patton was actually publicly out. No. I, yeah, yeah. I don't think he was, I mean, I think if you knew him and you interacted with him and befriended him, you would probably either figure it out or he would confide in you. But it's not as though he was like an out proud actor, like, because well, there weren't it, any in the 80s. Like, his, his major credit before this was that the come back to the five and dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean with Cher. Yeah. And he, he plays a gay character or a queer character. I'm not sure if he was, um, it's, I want to say. They did that show uh, at my at my undergrad, my senior. I had to run sound for, and yeah, it's well, it's funny too because it, it's a queer character, but and they become um, they undergo a, a, a gender transformation at the end, like Got they it. become. But it's weird. It's uh, that that play and, and movie are kind of weird too because they have they have the actor in the first act, and then they have like a, a cisgender woman play play them once they've had the chance. So I don't know it's like oh all that stuff, right? yeah yeah because yeah, Karen Black plays uh, Mark Patton at the once the transformation is undergone yeah they they oh, did that at my, at my college too yeah this is in like, 2006 that was Robert yeah. Altman yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's not a very good the script sucks well. I, I want to go back and I, I've never seen this movie and I now I, I like really want to seek it out. <laughs> yeah, it's I, from what I remember, the script is like not great. Um, it was a play first and then yeah, then they did this movie out of it. But um, but anyway, yeah. So that's all to say. I think like yeah, he had been kind of um, you know, in, as a dude who was probably trying to figure it out for himself. But it sounds like he was kind of already being put in these like nowadays kind of problematic situations in terms of sexuality and gender and, and whatever else. Well, it's interesting because in that, the piece that cause I pulled it up and um, Shoulder, the director, he's quoted saying, uh, this is all kind of hindsight, but it may be that the fact Mark was a closeted gay at that point, or at least as far as the film business went, that there was a part of what was coming through there. Uh, it never even occurred to me that he was gay, although he wasn't too great in the makeout scene, so I should have picked up on it, which is a ridiculous line. Uh, what a, just you know so what? fucking offensive. Yeah, like, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Like, but You know what? He, he went on to direct Wishmaster 2, and so he kind of got what was coming to him. <laughs> yeah, yeah in which I believe... Wishmaster 2 is actually pretty good. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> If I recall, like, I believe there's one scare in Wishmaster 2 that involves, like, a Gap store. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting setup for, well, or, like, whatever. There but, is a scene There is a scene where a guy fucks himself, so yes. make of that what you will. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that. Wait, really? I mean, the, the films oh, yeah. are great. It's not a good film. Let's clarify that. <laughs> yeah. it, sounds, I don't know, it sounds like David Chaskin. I don't know. Does he have... Maybe he has some some. No, uh, no, that was this is shoulder. This no. is this is oh shoulder. Sorry, sorry. It's sorry, the director. Yeah, it's the director. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, no, a man totally fucks himself in that movie, and you can go watch it on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> some of the most unruly, craziest death scenes, even just now, like after even the torture porn stuff that's happened, are so tame compared to some of the imagination that happened in the eighties and nineties. And like in this franchise alone, where one of the, the the second most harrowing death I would imagine after um, Tina is when uh, a girl turns into a fucking cockroach. And oh, then in like, yeah. you know, you literally have in Leprechaun, the star, oh, what's her name? The star from Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Um, I can't remember her name now. Oh, um, Caroline Williams. Yeah, she she literally, be- she becomes like, uh, almost like a duck. Inflates. Yeah, inflates yeah. with all this stuff. It blows up. I mean, it's just like the imagination that they had in, in some of these franchises and stuff that they got away with are pretty unreal. But if we're going back to Freddy 
for a moment. I think that the, <laughs> as we went off on a oh, is that where we? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was a tangent. Apologies. No, but that's great. I think I almost feel like the Nightmare Two is like the Halloween Three season of the Witch of this franchise because oh, yeah. it takes yeah. on mm-hmm. the idea of Freddy as something far more uh, personal. That it, like it, the, the the backstory of Freddy doesn't really matter here. I mean, granted, they go to where he works in the power station and and they 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 find Nancy's journal and all, but it really is a personal story. And I wonder if this franchise would have been even stronger had they been able to kind of focus on the internal struggles, the eternal fears of the the actual main character, as opposed to well, here's a a creature, a monster with a background. We're going to just keep having people fight against that because honestly, like the the real thing here is the struggle that's going on with Jesse and the collateral damage that has because of his own sort of insecurities and paranoia that's tied with it. And I think, granted, if they had a stronger script, I think you have something really powerful there. And I think that, you know, that's far more interesting than just a bunch of kids getting together with different powers like oh hey i like wizards so i have wizard power granted i love dream warriors but it's <laughs> far cry thematically than what you're actually getting here i don't know what are your what are your all thoughts on that i deeply respect this film for being willing to try something different and i don't want to again give uh chasekin too much credit because i don't actually think it was in his intention to say like let's take this franchise in a different direction like yeah. they didn't really know what they had they just said okay we need a new freddy adventure we're under the gun we need to get this prep so that we can get it out in theaters but you have to give it some credit for saying you know what freddy is a certain thing in people's minds but let's also explore what other possibilities there are for that and i think taking freddy into a possession film is a really interesting unique choice granted it doesn't quite pay off in all the ways that i think it possibly could have with a better script Mm -hmm. but at least it's trying something different which when you get into some of the later entries in this franchise it's like when introducing Roseanne Barr into your film is like the novelty. <laughs> I mean, you've kind of lost your Ugh. core principles. Yeah. Well, Freddy's Dead is going for a twin. Well, I know we're, y'all will talk about it in your episode, but that, that movie is going for a Twin Peaks vibe that just doesn't work. But no. whatever. Oh, yeah. We'll get to that eventually. But yeah, it's yeah. still uh, better than some of those uh, Nightmare or sorry, sorry, some of the Friday the 13th. Film. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, oh definitely. Sure. I mean, because it's still imaginative. I mean, like we mentioned this in the last episode, but we still haven't gotten to the point where, you know, someone's like, oh, God, I have allergies. And then all of a sudden, like they're going to that's going to be their death yet. You know, like that's not that hasn't really been the case here yet. It's almost just like the deaths are how he's going to like, however, he's going to get you. He's going to get you. It doesn't yeah. mean it doesn't have to mean like, well, I'm going to spend this whole time orchestrating this thing to get you just specifically for this thing that defines your character because like <laughs> that's literally what happens eventually in the in this in this franchise which is probably good because in this case it would be like freddy's gonna kill jesse with gay shit yeah like, exactly you're gonna shove this pro board game up your butt yeah it's <laughs> literally what i was gonna say he's gonna <laughs> shove the probe up his ass <laughs> Uh, Although I guess that's what we get with the coach in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, like even, even the way the shower nozzles look, I feel like totally looking like phallic and everything, you know? Yeah. They, we, I, I think the coach, when you guys say the coach is like, as far as like gay imagery goes and everything, like probably the death that leans the hardest into that in the movie. Well, I, I know that's heading into our next section, but like I, just, I have issues with that coach's portrayal and like how it like p- paints queerness as like predatory on yeah. young children. Yeah. I, I, I agree. Well, Let's talk about those children in the next section called You are all my children now. 
You guys, you know it's been nicer lately, and in Wisconsin, you never quite know when winter is going to be in, but it's been nice for like four days in a row, and I'm like, if sunnier days are coming, it's time to fuel up, and so I'm going back to my factor meals that no prep, no mess. I want to hit my weight goals before it's time to hit that beach. You've got options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto. Factor has these fresh, never frozen meals, dietitian approved guys. And here's the big thing for me, keeping out of the kitchen as much as possible, two minutes and these meals are ready. So it doesn't matter how busy you are, you've always got time. So treat yourself. They have 35 different meals to pick from, 60 add-ons to choose every week. You're always gonna have new stuff to try. Have it whenever you want, it's effortless guys. So if you'd like to try it yourself, head to factormeals.com slash badmovies50 and use code badmovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code badmovies50 at factormeals.com slash badmovies50 to get 50% off of your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. In this section, we're going to be talking about uh, Freddy's quote-unquote children or aka the cast of this movie. And uh, not a not a big cast per se, but there are definitely some notable characters that we should go into, and I think we should save Jesse for last because that's how we did it last time. We went into Nancy at the very end. Who do we want to start out with first? Uh, so, somebody throw a name, and we'll. Oh we'll God, go don't let Trace pick. <laughs> uh, no, I won't. I won't pick. Go, go, go. Someone else go. Meryl Street. Uh, well, that's not her real name, but uh, Kim <laughs> Myers. <laughs> All God right, damn it, that's the one Trace would have picked. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It, it, y'all, that is Meryl Streep. Okay? It is. She fucking changed her name because she doesn't let anyone know this dark secret. And I'm watching this. I'm like, I know what you did, Meryl Streep. I fucking know that that's you. You can't fool anyone. Ugh. Well, I'm, looking, I'm looking at her, uh, just her filmography. And I'm trying to see if there's any crossover with Mer- Meryl Streep, but uh, I don't think there is. A lot is of her, her first role was this film. And they literally mentioned in the documentary they, they you know, they chose her <laughs> for uh, her, you know, similarities to uh, Meryl Streep. I mean, this looks like like pre Kramer versus Kramer era. Deer mm. Hunter, uh, Meryl Streep. <laughs> She's in Deer Hunter? Oh, I totally forgot about that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, she's great. Yeah. Oh, okay. Mer- Mer- Meryl Streep is not Kim Myers. Yeah, that, no, that would be very interesting <laughs> if she was in that movie. She's probably like 12 years old or something. But what do we think about Lisa as a character? Oh, sorry. I dozed off for a moment. What was that? <laughs> <laughs> to her credit, she does, uh, you know, represent the the sort of Nancy Drew detective in this. She's the one that's trying to, like, parse out the details while Jesse's having, you know, like an existential crisis. I mean, God bless her. She's the only one who cares. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even <laughs> Jesse doesn't care at some point, And he's the one that's like, you know, exhibiting these problems. So do we ever get any sort of feeling that she's in danger in this whole movie? No, but and that's kind of my issue with the case. I think I think Kim Myers is fine yeah, in the she's, role. She's, um, but the problem is that Lisa as a character removes all of Jesse's agency. Like all he does is scream and whine, mm-hmm. whereas Lisa figures everything out for him and tells him this and eventually saves him in the end by kissing Freddie. So I don't have an issue with Kim Myers. I do have an issue with Lisa and like her role in this story. Yeah. Yeah, I'll echo that. So Trace and I actually just watched Fright Night 2 mm. and I got the same kind of feelings off of Alex, which is the new girlfriend in that film, Mm -hmm. where she's, you know, she's plucky and she's on the ball and she can kind of take care for herself. And you just don't care. Yeah, even he doesn't. I mean, at one point he's like, oh, my God, Jesse. And then just (laughs) like totally forgets about her at the club or something like that. I think given despite it being a more internal horror movie, this one and having less characters, which you think would result in more screen time for them. I think like you guys are saying, because of its length. And because I feel like a lot of them are almost serve more of like an allegorical purpose, 
there's just, they're, they're all pretty thin, I think. Like, I mean, there's nothing objectionable necessarily. It's just very, um, I mean, not, not just not just Lisa, but the friends. Like, everyone just feels like oh, yeah. more of a symbol than an, an actual character. Not because of the performances or anything. Like I mean, at least Lisa is a better friend who is a girl to Jesse than Glenn was a boyfriend to Nancy. Oh, I agree. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> I mean, Glenn's I mean, fallen th- asleep. He doesn't care. I mean, he falls asleep back in his own room after all these things that he's experienced and witnessed. Yeah, he's a shit boyfriend. But <laughs> so terrible. Do y'all, yeah. do y'all think that this movie is actually, like, trying to set up a romance between Jesse and Lisa. Do y'all buy it at any time during this movie? I think from her side, for sure. Like she's actively trying to get that D. (laughs) She is though. Yeah. (laughs) And like how exhaustive did they really try to portray her party as being this like total fuck fest? Like, I mean, it's, (laughs) Oh yeah. It's one step removed from cherry falls. It's insane. (laughs) Like even the parents are having sex upstairs. Yeah. Like this isn't subtext at all. Like this is, it's the most explicit sort of visual metaphor. Yeah. I I, I don't know. I I don't really buy their romance and I, I know that she does and I know that she's supposed to be confused, but there's never really a point where I get this, the sense that Jesse's really interested in her either. Well, and, and that's not really explicitly Patton's fault. I just think that the script, the script doesn't do anything to really like build their romance outside of anything other than a friendship. Mm -hmm. No, we we don't even really see them spending time together in any way that's, that's romantic or even like a traditional date, really like high schoolers would, um, like, I don't necessarily have to really buy into a high school relationship because most of them end anyway, you know, but when you're in high school, that's like the world, right? Like you're just like, oh my god, oh my god, and I, I don't even get that sense of like puppy love or anything else from from their relationship. No, he's just giving her rides to school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, by the way, where did he get the car again? They're driving like the bus, and then all of a sudden he has this like huge oh, yeah. school convertible. I'm like, wait a second, where the hell did that come from? Like, I, I, I think I, he stole it. <laughs> he probably did. <laughs> Because like, they talk about, she talks about like, hey, you don't have an, an ignition. He's like, yeah, that's how I got this car. Shh. Yeah, which is so <laughs> strange. I, I guess it plays into the idea that this is supposed to be a, like a dreamy sort of thing. And maybe that's supposed to like be the thematic thing of like, oh, he's got some, you know, this cool convertible car. And, he's you know, he's kind of taking on this like greaser sort of masculine. T- I don't know. I'm looking way too into it. But it does kind of play. It also like definitely embellishes the fact that it does feel like there are missing scenes out of this movie for sure. So, yeah, I mean, what, what any other thoughts on Lisa? <laughs> she doesn't die. I mean, <laughs> no, she's fine. I mean, she's she's there. Yeah. Did anybody else like kind of you when she had to kiss Freddie though? Oh yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, I feel I feel like most of the movies have like a Freddie licking or kissing moment, and they they always gross me out. I just think of like kissing a cold burnt pizza or something. That's also something too, though. It's kind of like I don't know if I buy that this bitch would like kiss Freddie for this for Jesse because like yeah, how long have they known each other? Again, that's that is a big problem. Yeah, you know, like we we have no idea how long they've known each other prior to when he's moved. They don't actually spend much time together. She seems so worried over this guy, and she doesn't seem as if she's like that. I mean, she's clearly a popular girl too. You know, like she has this. She's hosts this huge party, which everyone seems to know the rule book of based on like the parents going to bed and everything. So like, as if like this has happened before maybe. Um, Mm -hmm. So I I don't know. It's like, it seems weird that like this character would be so infatuated with a kid that seems to exist on the fringe and doesn't also show that much interest in her. So I I know it's, it's an odd setup. I would have thought that she'd want to keep Freddie around considering the potential of what he could do with that tongue. (laughs) (laughs) Oh God. That, uh, 
that's not the last time we're going to be seeing like gross shit with the tongue either. I don't think. No, no. the next one has not. quite a few. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, who do we want to go to next? Let's talk about Schneider, Coach uh, Schneider. Kind of a problematic character. Who wants to go first with, with Coach Schneider? Who wants to take the lap? <laughs> go ahead, Trace. How about it? Uh, okay. <laughs> no, I mean, like, hey, so I know I'm, I feel like I'm coming down on this movie a lot, and I actually do enjoy this movie. It's just like, you know, I, there, there are things to pick apart. But um, I appreciate the film's willingness to explore BDSM culture within the queer community. And so, like, that they even go to that setting, which honestly, and maybe... Maybe Jesse's 18, I guess. But how does he even get into this bar? I don't really understand that. (laughs) And also, what makes him go to that bar? I don't really get it. But it's really kind of disturbing because they they already set the coach up as like a quote unquote villain. You know, Mm -hmm. he's like making Ron and Jesse run around and do laps because they fought because Ron pants Jesse. And then, yeah, they just set him up as this predatory gay man who at night takes Jesse to the jim to run laps after he catches him in the bar which even then it's like you don't have the jurisdiction to do this i don't really it's like mind your own business yes i mean then he gets killed in a bdsm way so i guess in that regard though you could kind of say that this movie does start that concept of killing people based on their like one character trait that they're given yeah um yeah but even his death scene which is shocking and kind of disturbing. It feels very out of place in this movie. So, I mean, I don't know about the character himself. I mean, Marshall Bell is fine. And like, even in the interviews with him, I actually thought that he was very like charismatic and he was like really kind of into it. Um, but yeah, I just, I don't understand why this would be included in this movie, this particular character. Well, it's funny too, because when he's at that bar, like Je- Jesse never thinks there's anything weird about it. It's kind of like, all right, you're going to go relax. Like, all right, guess coach. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The movie never calls that there's any kind of weirdness about that at all. Like, I, I kind of wouldn't mind if it was in there and they acknowledge how strange it all is. But, yeah, it just seems never – no one ever questions it. It's very, it's like so bizarre. I was, I was trying to wrap my head around it the whole time well, when I was watching it. Here's an idea. If we take away any of the, the queer subtext and you just imagine Jesse as a vessel for Freddy to kill. Um, mm-hmm. Like, this is the movie Brain Scan now. And he's going to the S&M bar strictly to kill Marshall Bell, right? Yeah, that's what we'll be like. But, like, why? Why yeah. does he want to kill him other than, oh, he's kind of a douchebag coach? Like, is he just feeding into, like, oh, are we supposed to believe that, like, Freddy is feeding into his aggression? I mean, I bring up Brain Scan because Brain Scan seems to have that sort of, like, you killed without knowing it sort of thing and kind of feeds into your own impulses in a way. And um, I also just love referring that movie. But, uh, I <laughs> I think with this one, it's like that's the only thing I can think of for why he would be at that bar. Well, there's there's been a number of suggestions that there were rewrites into the script as the production, quote unquote, became more gay. And I I've often wondered if this scene like was it originally written in some different kind of way where it was just like they made a up bar. at the school or like was yeah, like was the bar was the BDSM angle always included because it feels imported from a completely different kind of film really i mean but ron has that line though where he when they're doing push-ups and he says uh oh they do uh he he hangs out of those queer bdsm joints downtown yeah and that he likes blondes like jesse yeah little twinks it would have been one thing if if it was a dream 
And it would have been so easy to do where you could have just had it where like, you know, Jesse just goes to like the the track or something like that late at night and he happened to be there. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is this also the first adult that Freddy actually kills? I mean, I'm just counting mm. the stinger from the first film. Yeah, was, uh, just, just Nancy's mom. But yeah, which this one mentions, I guess we forgot she, to, ki- she killed, killed herself, herself in the living room. Then the third one said Nancy says she died in her sleep. So I mean, I guess either way, it's like Freddie got her right. Um, and whether it was during the um, gang pulled through the door or the getting uh, lit on fire in the bed is up for debate. But like Fred, like, but yeah, this is I guess the first one that we we see, right? Yeah, yeah. like targets essentially, you know. Because I think with the mom, it's almost like coincidental, you know. Um, but I think this is the first one where Freddie like decides to go after an, an adult. Yeah, unless you count Rod, since he looks like an adult. But all of the teens in this movie look like they're about 35 years old. Yeah. 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 Seriously. Um, I mean, yeah. Meryl Streep, man. How old was Meryl Streep? Come on. She was, she was, she was 52. <laughs> <laughs> but no, even like, like Robert Russler, like as Ron Grady, like he looks like my dad when he was like, like raising me around this time. Uh, it's just, I, like, he does not look like Which, a kid in this whatsoever. Which with him too, because I, I, I called him Rod early. I was like, because he literally is the exact same character as Rod yes. in the first movie <laughs> and looks like the same actor. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's all it included. Well, let's talk about Ron. Um, yeah. You know, uh, other than the fact that he likes to eat a lot in that one scene, which I guess was for comedic <laughs> value, and that he appears to be a huge fan of leather sheets. <laughs> and also a fan of um oh, who did I who did I write down what was the uh, the posters that he had oh yeah I think he has the Lamal and the King Cobra posters in his room um what else what else do we know about Ron Grady <laughs> he likes camo short shorts yeah he has a body that I aspire to and <laughs> ditto yeah yeah he's having fun in the back with that hair love it yeah I'm very jealous of his hair for sure. But it it's is funny, how it, though. It, yeah, he is, he is literally a clone of Rod, which is it's kind of staggering. Um, I mean, that's it's just laziness on Chaskin's part, but he's <laughs> far more likable. Though. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, like, again, if you want to read Jesse as gay in this movie, it's it's actually very nice because I feel like a, a typical movie would have Ron be the bully. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this movie avoids that. So I, I actually did appreciate that Ron is seemingly like a very good friend for Jesse, even though their relationship makes no sense at all. No, no, no not, not one iota. No, because they hate each other at first. They what? seem like they don't even know each other at yeah. first. And then they're like. Okay, let's bond over talking about whether or not we're getting any girls while we do push-ups. And then from there, fast friends. I'm also just fascinated by, you know, like him pantsing Jesse. Like mm-hmm. I, th- th- and maybe y'all can shed some light on this because y'all are straight. But like I'm very fascinated by the straight sports goers willingness to just pants people and like show off their bare asses. I really oh, don't get it. <laughs> and no joke, man. At my high school, like. The, all the football players who were who you know were the most homophobic people at my school by far. Yeah, they would uh, you know if a new a new football player was sleeping in the locker room, they, a bunch of them would whip out their dicks and like beat their dicks on his head. Or if someone was uh, bending over in the locker room, they called it checking your oil, and they would just like stick a finger up his ass like that. Like for being the oh, most homophobic God. people around school, they did the most like like homoerotic, like sexually aggressive. Probably now would be you know construed as assault. Um, I actually <laughs> lived with a. Uh, uh, I hope none of them listen to this because they'll, they'll probably find me and kill me. But I, I used to actually lived at Florida State with a uh, a football player who I I'd gone to high school with. 
you know, we were friends, everything. And a bunch of his friends came up to go to an FSU game. Other guys we all went to high school with uh, one weekend. And we were running behind on like on schedule. Like we had to leave for this game and, and uh, we were running late. And so because all these football players had showered together in high school, like three of them squeezed into just like our apartment shower and showered together. And I don't think it went beyond that, but I was still like, man, like for making fun of gay people, you guys do like really gay stuff all the time. And uh, yeah, so I think I think that's a very like accurate observation. And I'm not sure where that where that comes from. I really, yeah, I, I've never understood that at all. Yeah. I mean, not there's anything wrong, by the way, with these three guys wanting to go shower together. Yeah, no, by it's all fine, means. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but yeah, like, like it's weird that they would do that. But then, like, ha- but then I, you know, I would go to the movies with my roommate, and he would insist that we had a seat between us for every movie. You know, yes, it, it's, I, yeah, it's like, wow. ridiculous. That's like the crux of it. It's like this weird, like, okay, you're in a way you do very like hypersexual stuff with these guy friends, which one scan is fine, but then you're so homophobic and throw around slurs all the time that it, I, yeah, I've never been able to wrap my head around I, it. I think it's honestly a lot of unconscious uh, stuff going on too. Like, I, I mean, for me, like, like I'm pansexual and I, 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 I've definitely had like certain confusing feelings. I was on the swim team. Um, didn't help that I was also like ex- exceedingly overweight on the swim team where you had to wear like, just like uh, speedos and stuff. So that was not a lot of fun in the locker room ever. But <laughs> I did notice a lot of times where like I would be confused and fascinated by like this the just the like the male body itself because I think like as a child you know you're growing up you're you're learning your own things your body is not necessarily the same as the other body but you do have the same body and I for me there was a lot of stuff in the locker room at times where I was just like am I supposed to be that big or like am I supposed to be you know like that tone like oh the body can look like that and like you know I think that there's that curiosity can sometimes skew to you know other feelings for sure and I think a lot of times with this quote-unquote jock when they're in the locker room I feel like those feelings they don't really I mean I don't I think that the atmosphere is so like uber masculine that I think mm-hmm. that, yeah, that those charge, feelings yeah. are there but I think that there's so much repression I mean I went to a, I'm like I was like the only Jew in a Catholic school so that was real fun and like so like <laughs> I, there's so much repression that was going on there I mean to the point like where like we were literally hammered at every goddamn day at theology class where we had to like you know like read like eyes of an angry god and do our indulgences and all that other shit Ugh. and it was awful but they they there's so so much repression because you'd you'd i mean i would see it all the time and i think that knowing that that type of culture presents that i almost feel like that's sort of the same thing that happens in like sports culture too because it's like the same sort of thing it's like this institution that like condemns that idea and maybe they, they don't explicitly condemn it and especially not nowadays where they all try to act as if they're you know so so open and everything um that's just i i still think the the intention and implicit like that's that sort of implicit harm um, or that fear uh, that paranoia is there, which is, but at the same time, you are a bunch of guys that are exploring <laughs> your bodies sweaty. together. And I just don't see how that doesn't peak out. I mean, like, and, and I think that that's why like, am I, I mean, in my life, like there are so many kids that just would like pull their, their, you know, their testicles out on the, the baseball field because they thought it was funny. Um, there would be other guys that like, I mean, one guy like used to try to like grab my nipples. It was like everyone would just be like, oh, boys will be boys. But I think a lot of it just has to do with the fact that like, and I don't think people in general know what to do with their feelings sometimes. And especially that, in that that's atmosphere. That's the thing though. Like if you're like a, someone who comes off as like, femme or effeminate like yeah. and you do that you, you don't get that cover of like oh like it's just boys being boys like oh no you're, you're gay like yeah. you're a fag like, that's yeah. what, that's you're what trying to sleep with me yeah yeah yeah, which yeah, is it. which is what I think a lot of the fear comes into with them too we don't play it off as a joke <laughs> 
then it gets kind yeah. of thrown into that. I well, do, and I would say, I would say too, like for all I know, I mean, some of those football players in my school uh, were or are gay. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. they, oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which I, I mean, as far as I know, none of them are like them friends on Facebook. But like, who knows? I mean, if you're in that environment, I, I'm sure they don't feel very encouraged to come out and yeah, you know, talk about their sexuality or even talk about anything other than being completely straight and like wanting to fuck girls all the time. You know what I mean? And so I, I feel like yeah, like Mike said, you're in this weird environment where on one hand you're being you're literally being encouraged to rub up against other guys and be sweaty and be physical with each other, but you're also being like forbidden to really to really um explore anything beyond heteronormativity. And, and granted this was high school back in you know, I graduated two thousand two. So hope hopefully it's changed a little bit, but I mean I, at the same time I don't know. Yeah, and yeah. I think Ron Grady kinda like um kind of really presents that sort of idea that we just don't know, you know, I think that there, I think people could probably make the argument that he might've even had an interest in Jesse. Like he doesn't condemn him ever, which is great. Like which we already discussed and they're, they're even, even when he comes over, he's still mm-hmm. trying to like, you know, sell Jesse on Lisa, but he's not exactly being like, get out of my house or something like that. He's like, let's him sleep over for Christ's sake. So like, I mean, yeah, I know. I think like in that respect, like, Ron's a pretty cool guy, but at the same time, we have no idea who the fuck he is. <laughs> like, no, yeah, he's yeah. a pretty, pretty cool guy. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, yeah, what does like he even play? Yeah. yeah, but at least he gets a bedroom. Like yeah. Lisa, <laughs> Lisa doesn't even get a place to sleep. Which is, which <laughs> is she so, has a pool. Which, yeah, that's true. <laughs> she, she sleeps in the cabana. Yeah, that is a good point. We never see Lisa's bedroom, which is so strange. Which the bedroom is like such a. That's like the easiest way to explain characters in this franchise, you know? Yeah. I mean, Lisa's parents do not give a fuck about her or anything she does because she gets to do whatever she wants. Yeah. What do we, do we think that, uh, the parents actually go to the bone zone though? Like I, like, I feel like they kind of got distracted too much. Um, and they didn't actually have a good time. Also, we, we totally skipped over her parents. Usually we talked about parents with like the key roles, I guess in this, but I kind of, there's some satellite to everything. I I mean, I guess the dad gets uh, the gun. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the women in this film are all very sexually aggressive. Mm-hmm. And I think that the mom in this case is like, honey, who cares about the party? Can we please get down to business? And the dad's <laughs> yeah. like, sorry, I got to grab my gun. <laughs> Which I love that he has like six guns. Um, like in this it, it is kind of funny to see, to see someone go after Freddie like a shotgun. Like, yeah. like Freddie just slept with his daughter or something. <laughs> it yeah. feels very like like farmer uh, or like rural almost. What's but it? yeah, I mean, like her, her parents are very like not non-existent. But like whereas you go like even Jesse's parents, like they don't have the same presence that Nancy's parents have in the in the or even the importance that they have in the first movie. No, they're just so aloof. Um, I, I mean, I, I guess it's intentional, but yeah, they're, I mean, well, like, they're, they're hilarious, but well, like the last scene where he gets in the bus, the mom, like, his that exchange with his mom and the mom's like, glad to have you back. And I'm like, where has he been? Yeah. Do you care? <laughs> what, <laughs> what, what do you mean? All right. If we're going to just talk about parents right now, cause like we'll go back to Ron for a second, but if, if we talk strictly about parents, the, the weirdest thing I have to mention first is did anyone else think that Jesse's parents seemed a little too old? Like, yeah, I can see that. How dare you insult D. Wallace like that? (laughs) (laughs) All the doppelgangers. Oh, my God. I was thinking about D. Wallace, too. Except, like, it would be like if D. Wallace in the 90s had been, like, you know, in E.T. It just seemed like the characters here were just 
a little too like they would be the parents of, a, of like 30 somethings as opposed to like you know a girl who looks like she's like eight years old you know like I, I'm, I'm supposed to believe that I, clue Goliger at this point um and and, and hope Lange like they they both had this this girl like maybe eight years ago I, I just don't I don't I don't know I didn't buy it like it seemed a little I, they li- like a little too old for me I actually think the mom because I, I I looked up because to see what her credits were and the only thing I could find was um Peyton Place that was like really like that, that I would know but I want to say she was born in the 30s the oh actress my gosh, and yeah. oh my god <laughs> and don't quote me on that but if my memory serves i think she was born in the 30s <laughs> yeah which we should clarify that trace is a, a beautiful baby angel and he has no concept of what old people are actually <laughs> like so how, how old are you trace i will be 30 uh in a couple weeks uh, yeah, i'll be 35 this year mike you're, and you're, mike and i are the same age yeah. uh, and what about you joe i prefer not to say oh okay no no, okay, <laughs> no i'm um, kidding i just turned 37 Okay, cool. Yeah. So, yeah. Yes. So, so Hope Trace Lang was eight. born in 1933. Good just so you all know. So she, so she, she would have been 52 when this movie came out. Okay. And She's Jesse is supposed good. to be, what, 16? So, I, uh, yeah. I would say 17. Yeah. It's always weird to me because my parents had me really young. Like, my, my parents are only, my dad's 56, my mom's 55. And I'm I'm thirty uh, I'm thirty four, and so I, I feel like whenever I see that in movies, like with Jesse's parents, like it really stands out to me because like oh they're like older than my parents, but Je- you know Jesse's younger than me, so um yeah I mean it doesn't ruin the movie. People can have can have kids at all ages they want to. <laughs> yeah, but I think so, this is emphasized by the number of different household activities that uh, Jesse's father is unable to actually perform. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> it's because he's. he's Practically falling off ladders. He's yeah. inept in every way. Like uh, it should be noted that Clue Golger was born in 1928. <laughs> what? <laughs> wow. wow. So he was like 57 when this was made. And I think he's still alive. Yeah, he is. He's still alive. He's 90 years old right now. Yeah, he's he's an interesting talking head in that documentary also. But mm, he's um, pretty fun. So yeah, very old parents that don't necessarily fit the John Hughes mold, even though Clue Gallagher kind of looks like John Hughes in parts of the the, the movie. But um, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe yeah. I'm, I'm I'm way overthinking this. But it's just for me, it felt like the like looked as if he was like adopted by his grand grandparents or something like that. I think you're uh, I think you're being ageist. I like, might be. I ageist. Don't appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's hard when you're comparing like hot dad to like grandpa dad. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, okay, so what do we think about Ron's death, though? Because we didn't get to talk about uh, his demise, because there's not a lot of deaths well, here, other, you know, other than... You I, know. Should, should we wait till we get special effects? Yeah, as I didn't know if you want to... Yeah, that's like a big effects moment, so I don't know if you want yeah. to talk about that now, or... We could save that. We could save that. Um, either way, Ron gets iced. Um, yeah. One of the more, to me, that's actually kind of one of the moments where the, the film sort of loses a bit of energy. Like, mm-hmm. it's that, and then the pool scene, and then... I just kind of fall oh, asleep see. at that point. No, I, I I think his death scene actually is like one of the highlights of the movie for me. Oh no, that's what I'm saying. Like after that point, oh like, yeah, oh, the, the film loses a lot of momentum and energy. Here, here yeah. here's a question: How many remembered the film ends at that power plant? Oh, I forget it every time. Yeah. I, totally I remember the dogs and that's it. Yes. <laughs> oh God. We'll the talk dogs about that. with the happy oh, death the day dogs faces. And the human faces. Oh, that was, that was pretty but, Like the invasion right? of the body snatchers. Uh, like, yeah. Thing that uh, they did. Um, okay. Well then we're done with Ron. We've got Elisa covered. Uh, we've already talked about Freddy Krueger, uh, who also doubles mm-hmm. as a bus driver here. Uh, Robert yeah, Englund himself. He it's funny that like Robert Englund uh, like actually appears on screen here. Cause like he almost like didn't even make this movie. Because he was in like the, I guess his agent was like negotiating pretty high for it, and yep. so they had to use a stand-in. So I think like that scene where Marshall Bell 
is being killed and like or Freddie emerges from the smoke. That's the clip they use when they're talking about like the stand-in or like the extra. So I'm wondering if that's the the person that they had in because I guess for a, like a week or so that they they didn't have Robert England on set, which is crazy to me. Who do we talk about next? I mean, there's not a I mean, lot. Like nah, it's it's really just Carrie the the horn dog friend. Otherwise, I don't really know who else you can really discuss. And with her, it's just like. <laughs> She's there to ask Lisa if she got laid, and then she's there to get killed. She literally Actually, looks. I'm checking the fact sheet. Her name is Cheryl. <laughs> Wait, no, no, the oh, mom's no, 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 name the is mom's Cheryl. Cheryl that, okay, oh, the mom's Cheryl. Yeah. Oh, so she we, didn't even make your fact sheet. She's so unimportant. I know. <laughs> so Sydney Walsh as Carrie. I I kind of felt bad in a way because yeah, she, she does feel like a character in a David Wayne movie. <laughs> or like the type of character that David Wayne would absolutely make fun of literally existed as that the, the, the same fucking question over and over again to the point where that's kind of almost the same thing that she says when she dies or quote unquote dies at the end of the movie. It's so it's almost like they could have had just like a cardboard cutout. Like <laughs> I rewatched the movie just last night and the only thing even having seen it like 12 hours ago, the, the only thing I can remember from her is the late comment and then her getting uh, getting killed at the end. I seriously remember like nothing else about her. No, that, that, that's all she has. And did y'all, did y'all catch, though, during her death at the very, very end? It's like a really a, a jarring jump, jump oh, cut. awful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I still can't. I can't believe that. Given all the, the crazy effects that they have in this movie, especially with, like, Jesse's transformation, that that would – and especially since this is the last scare – that they yeah. that they went with that like i don't know maybe the reshoots really just jarring or bad or something but yeah it's it's really it, shoddy <laughs> it feels like they put their money into certain places and then they either ran out of time or ran out of money in other places but i do want to say one thing to give carrie credit i'm like the person who loves to promote like female positivity and like fuck you men kind of moments yeah so i love the part where she's consoling lisa after jesse runs away to grady's house and Mm -hmm. the guy comes up to her in the pool and he's like hey babe come back in the water and she's like fuck off (laughs) (laughs) and he just kind of like whimpers away (laughs) she's a good friend i mean like you know when i was single i wish i had a friend that was so concerned about me having sex that they were just (laughs) (laughs) totally putting their own life on hold to like find me hookups i don't know It'll be okay. Let's go get you laid. Yeah, like it's almost like she like runs out there like panting, just being like, oh, oh, "Are you are you gonna get sex? Do, do, I, do you need help? I I could, I could I could find a room for you." Does this mean that we're at the final boy? Oh yeah, I guess oh, we yeah. have to talk about Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we we we, we, we talked about like the we talked about like I feel like the the context of him and the implications of of yeah. his character. But I guess yeah, we, we haven't really talked too much about. Him just being a likable protagonist, aside from all the the uh, sexuality stuff. Yeah. So he wants to kick and this he one is off. likable. Yeah, I, I agree, a hundred percent. Yeah. Um, I like his scream. Yeah. He I has agree. a great scream. He does it several times in the. It's almost. Um, I feel like it switches three times. It sounds like, it's like three different people screaming. I, I really did admire that a lot. Here, here's something I want to bring up real quick for this. This is just, just so weird, which is what something I was trying to imagine while watching this, because I can't imagine anyone else but Mark Patton doing this uh, at, at this point. But they were originally they were thinking about like Christian Slater and Brad Pitt for yeah. these roles <laughs> and as a huge diehard Christian Slater fan. And I have been obsessed with him and his look and just uh, i can't imagine him in this movie i mean i think if christian slayer did it, he'd be too cool i mean the yeah. reason i like i like jesse yeah. in this movie is because of the awkwardness and the angst and the he's i don't know he's almost i mean he's not like 
severely picked on at school, I don't think. But he, he's just kind of like, he almost seems like a normal kid, you know, like a very forgettable kid, which I mean is a, as a positive for the movie. Um, it just makes him more relatable as a protagonist, I think. Do you think it's a big jump between the Jesse we see in the bus who like has like the weird kind of Eric Trump um like oh God. back there. <laughs> I was so puzzled by that. I was like, he looks gross yeah. in this scene. And but they in that documentary, they they read the the script description of his character, and it matches how he is in the bus. Mm-hmm. But then he doesn't. He, he looks cooler. Like yeah. his hair is better for the rest of the movie, which is odd. Yeah, he's got he's like got Harring- great sunglasses. Yeah, he does become like Steve Harrington esque by like next scene. He's got amazing eyes. The piercing mm-hmm. eyes are crazy. Like, I feel like that kind of matches like the intensity of like of uh, Freddie's eyes for this for sure. But he's got that fun floral wardrobe, yeah. like all those different kinds of shirts. Like he actually <laughs> just seems like a like a fun normal guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I guess with like the and then his room has got some interesting stuff. You met, you already mentioned probe. Um, there's yeah, a game in there. It's there. Uh, no, which is apparently town. a real game, though. Is it really? Yeah. <laughs> I wonder what the the, the rules of pro. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what, what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's see. It's a parlor game. Probe is a parlor game introduced in the 1960s by Parker Brothers. It is reminiscent of the simple two-person game Hangman, whose object is to guess a word chosen by another player by revealing specific letters. Probe extends the number of players to a maximum of four and introduces additional game elements that increase the levels of both skill and chance. Like Hangman, each player has a secret chosen word, but unlike Hangman, the game ends when the last word, not the first word, is revealed. Yeah, so there's Probe. No no, uh, S&M tricks there, but... um, That's just that game. Gay set designer having a laugh. Yeah, yeah. With like the no out of town girls, like which seems weird. Like, that, oh like, yeah, I don't understand like out of town thing because then it also looks like it's it's crossed out. It too. just has no girls. <laughs> yeah, which is weird. Any other any thoughts on Jesse? I mean, yeah, I don't have a lot more to say about him. I mean, I, I do like him. I'm actually a little bummed that we don't get him back in any sequels. Although um, I had seen some fan theories, which I don't really particularly subscribe to. But there's a line in the third one where they say that um, a patient cut off their eyelid so they couldn't sleep. And someone was like, oh, I, I always thought that was Jesse. And I'm like, well, Ooh. there's nothing really <laughs> there's nothing really to suggest that. But sure, if you want to go that route. Ah, that's actually kind of sad and scary. Because it's what's weird is that like the mythology, I, I I always forget that it takes place five years after A Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. Until you read that, I completely forgot that. Right. And, and that changes a lot because the the biggest time jump I always thought was Nightmare 5 to 6, where it's supposed yeah. to be like far into the future and like Springwood has just become like a set in like Universal Studios. But the five years is, is, is intriguing because it's like, are we supposed to believe that like Freddie has been gone this long? Is that why like there's like a total reset button? Like it doesn't appear that anyone in Springwood knows well, well, who Freddie is. That's the thing about the rules, though, that the script just doesn't seem to know is that, you know, this movie seems to suggest that he's tied to the house. Mm-hmm. But that's not what the first movie set up. Yeah. <laughs> it's like any any he can get you anywhere yeah. if you're asleep and he's only focused on Jesse in the house. I guess that's why it always changed the mythology for Freddie. I think in the first episode, I foolishly said that like the house, fortune 28 was originally Freddie's house, but I think that's only the case because the house becomes so central to everything that's in the, the other movies. I mean, doesn't it, it's becomes the dollhouse too, right? Yeah. Well, I think Patricia Arquette's character lives in the house. Oh, okay. So the, the house just becomes this, like it becomes this like haunted monument, even though Freddie like never lived there. It was just it happened to be which is super weird because the house itself is not particularly interesting. It no. just has an iconic red door. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess like the front of it, like the like it, you have those columns and shit. But and again, not that the second one's like the biggest breaker of rules because then like that with Freddy's Dead, you have like a oh, there's like a portal once you leave the, the Springwood County lines or whatever. It just it, yeah, it, it's very confusing. Well, I uh, I will say I do like that Jesse's household eats Fu Manchu cereal. Uh, <laughs> is, that, that, is that a real cereal? Like, no, I, I, I do like that bit with the fingers. It's it's, 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 I believe it's the most popular cereal for racists. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nice. What do you think about the bird bit? Oh, they, I was they, living for the bird this time. It's so weird. Yeah, I I just I don't understand it as an artistic choice. Like why of all of the things that you could do as a horror set piece, would you choose to do a possessed bird? Even if you're thinking, you know what, let's do a homage to the birds. A, no. And B, (laughs) hierarchy. Yeah. 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 Other weird things I thought, like instead of the stay up, they just it's called stop up thing that like Jesse's (laughs) drinking. Why don't you just keep it stay up? The STA hyphen up you know hypnosil is such a better word but i just thought that was such a oh uh, yeah it seems so lazy to me but um are we meant to pronounce it stop that's what i thought oh stop Stop. (laughs) 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 kind of ridiculous Uh, maybe it's just me but i thought that the way that they found the journal was kind of lazy oh super lazy wasn't that hidden you know it's just kind of there yeah how did he not find that before i don't (laughs) understand (laughs) yeah I mean, I guess it like if he hasn't really been unpacking per se, but even then it's like it's only in that little nook that's in the closet. So I mean, he had enough time to put his probe game up there. Yeah, that's true. Unless that was Nancy's probe game. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Nancy, you dirty girl. Uh, Gosh. I actually do want to say the the recurring comment from the father about how Jesse refuses to unpack his room. I always thought that is such a bizarre choice. Like, why does the dad fucking care so much? Like, who cares if he's unpacked his room? You don't have to sleep there. You don't have to live there. Just like, let Jesse be. Yeah. Well, that's just like lazy, like point A to point B, I guess, because he has yeah. to get to that journal for this to kind of extrapolate a little bit, which I don't even know if you needed the journal. Like, I don't, I, like I, I get it for connective tissue for the previous film, but that's all it is. That's literally all it is. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't really serve a function. Because honestly, one of the most haunting images for me in the movie is when he's just curiously looking through the house and he opens the door to the basement and you see like there's a shadow of somebody walking down there. And that's like terrifying to me. And that would be enough for me to just I don't need the journal at that point. You could just have him try to be like, who the hell is this man that's in my house? I almost feel like it would be more effective as a character for Jesse to not even have that journal and he would have to kind of figure it out himself and it would probably play more into his own sort of paranoia and the themes that they were kind of discussing with Jesse as well. I just, I, I just feel like the journal is too lazy. Yeah. yeah. 85 yeah. minute run time. That's true. That is true. <laughs> All right. Are we done talking about the, the children on M street in this century? I think so. Yeah. Right. Some deaths or some effects or both. Well, let's talk about some great graphics. Ah! What do you know? I beat my high score. <laughs> in this section, we're going to be talking about the outstanding special effects in this Elm Street entry. And I think there are quite a few in this one. Uh, who wants to kick this one off? And what was their favorite uh, special effects that they saw in Elm Street 2? Man, I, I mean, I think Freddy emerging from, from Jesse is pretty great and disgusting. Um, there's something really weird about 
I, I think it's like an animatronic head when the head first emerges from mm-hmm. the body. That's it's very uncanny valley and unsettling to me. Um, and I think it's the first time we see Freddy sort of larger than life, um, which is something they come back to later on in the movie. But yeah, I, mean, I think I think the effects throughout the nightmare movies are really good and they keep getting more and more elaborate. But like I said before, this one it's it's all about the body horror. Mm-hmm. And there's like I feel like there's two sequences, yeah, that really that really drive that home. But uh yes, that that's the that's the one that I mean it's kind of an obvious one, I guess, but immediately came to mind. Who wants to go next? <laughs> I, know, I was, I was like giving you all the chance. Uh, I, I was just going to say, you know, I mean, I, I, that's clearly the standout set piece of this movie, and it's yeah. great. And obviously very representative of, you know, him being inside Jesse and the mm-hmm. shot of the eyeball in his mouth. But I actually really do love the uh, the you've got the body, I've got the brains. And then he peels his scalp yeah. back and like oh, yeah. his brain. That that that's always that's a very striking image for me, even more so than him emerging from Jesse's chest. And it's really fucking gross. It is. Yeah. I love how understated that one is, because the the showpiece is obviously Freddie coming out. And that is a fantastic piece of practical effects. Like it, it almost makes my heart hurt for all of the shitty CGI that we get in a lot of contemporary mm-hmm. horror films. Yes. <laughs> but there's something so powerfully understated about when he rips off his own scalp and it's just like, like the effect looks seamless. Yeah. And it's one it, of it's those early things on too, right? Like it's one of the first things we really see like that. And it's, ugh. yeah, yeah, it's great. Um, and then my personal favorite is the, the plumes of feathers when the bird explodes. <laughs> <laughs> All those green feathers. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I, I, I mean the tra- the body transformation is obviously just, I mean, that's just, it's unreal. I mean, like they, they definitely spent their budget for that for sure. And based on the documentary, you can tell they just really intensely worked on. Um, I think they said like every, every shot, like included something different with SFX. Um, they, they had to do like multiple different like um, body types and even like the casting for the body, you know, Mark had said that the, it was, it was pretty much like just a nightmare in itself for him because he had to be like doused in all this, like, what is it? The, 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 the cast that they have to put him in or whatever for his body. He said that he was just like in the dark a lot for it. And so I, I think that the attention to detail that they had there and the fact that they, that it is just all practical effects makes it, it's just one of the reasons why, like I, I think this, this franchise, even outside of its narrative and characters are always going to be interesting to watch because you're going to see something that's, pretty jaw dropping that they're able to do. And I do love how it does feel very seamless in ways that a lot of things in this movie don't. I mean, like the dogs thing, it's, it's just so, it's so <laughs> obvious. Like, the dogs. It's just, dogs. it's funny that like, I think one of the SFX guys, like in the documentary said he was working on aliens at the time. So like, he just was like, yeah, you know, the mouse, the cat and mouse thing probably could have been better. And you know, whole- I've got priorities. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, it's, it's like I think I do think the design of the dogs is, is freaky and um, it's a cool idea, but I think it is telling that they only show them for a split second. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like I think if they yeah. lingered on them any longer, it would it would probably well, get ruined. Yeah, I mean, like what was it? Stop motion? Is that what it was? I what? No, what I think it's a of? dog with a face on it. Yeah, 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 I think it's just dog with a face. Which is just, I think, it's why okay. it looks so bad because they can't cover the fact that they're like, oh, we took a paper plate and poked a <laughs> hole in it and put it on a dog. Yeah. <laughs> And also, like, what is the point? I mean, it seems so superfluous to everything else that's going on in that scene. Like, it actually probably would have been more effective if there weren't anything there. You're already going in this abandoned factory that has some of the greatest lighting. It looks like a night, like an industrial nightclub because of all the green and red. 
I think they were trying to make it like your Lisa was entering hell, like you know, like Greek mm-hmm. mythology, the, the Cerberus guards the underworld. So I think that was their intention, but they got like two pugs instead of a three-headed <laughs> dog. Oh, one of the things I did love, and we didn't bring this up before, is when they first go to the factory, and Jesse and them like open up that 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 uh the locker. And all it is is just like a, a rat that's like sitting there on like this thing. And she like closes her eyes. She's like, oh my God, oh my God. And like, like, like turns away and he's like, like embracing her. And it's just like, it's, it's going to be okay. Like it just seems so over the top given everything else that they've already started experiencing. And I mean, women, women are such fragile creatures. They just can't stand the sight of a rat. I don't, oh, I don't know. So dumb. <laughs> so dumb. But it's hilarious because it's the most scared she is the entire film. <laughs> it is. <laughs> so ridiculous like sure yeah i'm gonna go into this abandoned factory i'm gonna face off against you know pug dogs uh <laughs> weird rodents and cats that have been mutated the wax figurine of freddy but yeah no a simple rat in a locker <laughs> terrifying uh, awful Ooh, that that actually is something that i do like though is uh freddy melting at the end that's mm. a really really cool looking effect yeah i think it looks really great like it holds up i mean <laughs> yeah it really does. some of the animatronic stuff when freddy's coming out of jesse like it looks a little like it hasn't aged as great, mm-hmm. but the wax figurine of Freddie melting to me, I was like, oh, that still looks really good. Well, I don't know if you all remember this, but in Freddie versus Jason, whenever like Freddie's giving the recap at the beginning of the movie, they do kind of a supercut of a lot of his kills uh, from the franchise. And they use pretty much every effect shot from the second one, which I really is, a te- is speaks a lot about how good the effects in this movie are. And it also is kind of cool because given just the proximity of the first one, like when we were discussing the turnaround, I mean, the fact that they were able to just w- wipe away the, the effects crew and get a new one to come on in is pretty impressive and i think they referenced like american werewolf in london which had pretty much established the makeup mm-hmm. and effects for at the academy awards they kind of re- re- they talk about how like it was very similar to jesse's transformation in in this film and i mean i could definitely see the similarities for sure i i, I could imagine being in in theaters in 1985 and just being like holy shit, like, I can't, like, that's amazing. Like, how do they do that? And I can see why, to Joe's point before, why everything else afterwards would be kind of like an afterthought. (laughs) Because you don't really ever, other than the melting effect at the end, you don't really get anything to that level again. Um, Mm-mm. No. And the problem, too, is that we've got the the big pool party massacre after that. And really, we're just seeing kids get tossed into the pool. Yeah. And yeah. like nobody's getting a really fantastical death. So you've got this beloved character who, you know, there may or may not be an emotional, romantic connection to. He gets stabbed in it's by far the longest death sequence of the entire film as well. Like, it's... It's very suspenseful. And then you're like, okay, so character I cared about, protracted death sequence. And then from that point on, it's like, eh, it's all just kind of downhill from here. Yeah. Like, what could you even do then? Like, where where should this movie have ended? I think you have, you're have. honest about the pool party should have been the climax. Like, yeah. I, don't, I don't need the boiler room sequence. But again, with the movie clearly trying to pin, like, to position Lisa as the savior, which, you know may work for some may not work for others. It doesn't really work for me. Cause it's like, well, why have Jesse be your final boy? If someone else is going to save him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was, that was what was so great about Nancy. And the first one is that she does everything herself. She saves herself because no one's like, she can't rely on anybody, not her parents, not her boyfriend, her friend, the rest of her friends are dead. Like, and so it just, you know, you're kind of left with the end of this movie. Like, mm, like I like Jesse, but who am I supposed to really like? I mean, I don't know. It, it, it's tricky. I don't know where you could have ended it. 
Well, and Lisa's such a non-character. You're like, mm-hmm. oh, am I suddenly cheering for her? I don't even know her. Yeah, maybe that's yeah. why like the ending itself feels is like it's so forgettable because it does feel like a totally different like it feels like it's part of a different movie at that at that point. And and also like let's also think of it logically. Like, all right, so this guy who you've had a crush on at high school, ever since you've got to meet him, awful shit's happening. Um <laughs> granted you see Freddy in the flesh. So I, there's definitely some sympathy there, but at the same time, you don't really know. You haven't seen Jesse either, so you're also wondering, like, well, could, maybe it's just Jesse. But I'm going to go alone to this boiler room place in the middle of nowhere and try to find this person I'm in love with, who may also just be a psycho killer too. Like, I mean, even like logically and narratively, like, granted, I know this is a horror movie, but she doesn't like, even why? have a weapon. Yeah, she has nothing. <laughs> She's just driving. Yeah, what was there. her plan? Yeah. It's, it's She's a- like, well, I've got lips and breasts and that should be enough. <laughs> no. God, it's, I'm it's- Meryl fucking Streep. I'm going to kiss my way out of it. Yeah. She's going to act. She, she has Oscar worthy acting skills. Oh Lord. Um, any other great graphics that we want to talk about? I don't think so. I mean, not on my end. I, I will say that I actually, I recognize that the lighting isn't great at the foundry, but I do love that extreme long shot of her, climbing up the stairs yeah. and just getting to see how big that space is. It does yeah. kind of remind me of the Leviathan from Hellraiser two, mm-hmm. which mm. is maybe one of my favorite horror movie sequels. So I could have a soft spot, but I just think visually I'm like, wow, that is a great set location. Yeah. Too bad you guys waited to use it and you used it for this. <laughs> yeah. Is it was, so that was like a helicopter shot too, right? Or is it like, cause it seemed like it was too high to be a crane shot at that point, or maybe they did use a crane that was there. I don't, I, cause you're with her when she's there and then all of a sudden it just keeps zooming out and like, you're like sky high above it, which is kind of crazy. It, it this movie didn't have helicopter money. <laughs> no, I I think it was a miniature. That's what I'm thinking. And like, but again, like you said, like it, it cuts from like you know, I mean, it doesn't cut. It just zooms out. And so the fact that I guess they, I don't know, I, I don't know. But yeah, I thought it was a miniature, but I could be wrong. It, could, it, probably, it, might, it probably is. I mean, they use a shitload of miniatures, and I feel like they they definitely use miniatures for you know, like when the the bus is like on the the rocks and everything like that. So I'm sure they did it for that too. I do love that little bit of stop motion. It's kind of fun. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, and that's why I kind of love like how the never sleep again documentary has like the stop motion and as the segs too. Cause it seems that it's, it's like so emblematic of the series and stop motion just scares the shit out of me. Even though Dan over here loves those fucking rank and bass, uh, things. <laughs> oh, I man, can't, yeah, I can't no, watch yeah. them. They're terrifying. No. It's like my favorite aesthetic. Yeah, all the. I mean, uh, yeah, they are freaky. I think that's why I like them too. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it. I'm with you. It creeps me out. I don't. I, it, it's not something that is aesthetically pleasing to my eyeballs. No, no. It's just like I, I kind of wish that horror would use it a little bit more because, like, even when it's not good and it's clumsy, like Evil Dead's one of my favorite movies of all time. But like the stop motion at the end is so crazy and clunky, but it still works for me. Like I, mean, I don't, same thing with the, the end of the thing. They they have like that one stop motion shot with the monster at the end, and it's um. Yeah, yeah, but it, it makes it idiosyncratic in a way yeah. that kind of defines it, like ties it to the time period in a way that's always really uh, fascinating and, and amusing to me. Uh, all right, well, I believe it's uh, who, who wants to do this uh, this next line uh, here. Um, we could all do this together, but I'll lead it to someone else to to do the last line. Um, <laughs> let me find out a seg for this. I don't. I, this, we all hate doing this seg. Um, what the welcome to primetime bitch or the that? There you go. <laughs>
Okay, this is going to be a little difficult because, um, as we discussed, it's kind of hard to differentiate between what's reality and what's actually a nightmare. What do we think, though, if we had to choose the single best nightmare in this movie, what do we, what do we pick? Mine is the melting room. Like, that's mm. honestly, if you were to tell me what was a nightmare in this movie, I couldn't tell you one, except for some reason that melting room just really sticks in my brain. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's weird. All right. So there's the one big one that opens the movie. So maybe I'll save that for, for someone. Um, I, it's, I don't know if I even call this a nightmare. It's just an element of a nightmare. I mentioned it briefly before. It's when Jesse goes into the room and he sees the little girl just jumping rope. Yeah. And I think it's because there's something so weird about a little girl in a dress who's clearly supposed to be outside just in the middle of the house jumping rope and saying this creepy, you know, Freddie rhyme. That And I'd kind of forgotten that that happens in the movie. So that one to me, actually, I think that's the moment that freaked me out the most. But um, I know it's not an entire nightmare, but just I, I don't know why that like really stuck with me. But I mean, we, we should probably talk about the, the bus, right? The the opening sequence. Yeah, the nightmare with the bus never really did much for me. I, I think that it seems like too much of a cop out to like kind of take on the original one, you know, with like the the convertible. Mm-hmm. So for me, yeah. I was, I'm not like the biggest fan of it, but although it is like definitely one of the more iconic set pieces of this film, you know, like I was watching it earlier this morning and, um, my girlfriend had rolled over and she's like, Oh yeah, I remember the bus sequence from when I was a kid. Yeah. And, yeah. and like, oh, no, no, it's freaky about it. Is it, it, it's not even like the, the rocks falling away and Freddie being on the bus. I actually get really uh, disturbed by, they make it look like the desert is right next to the neighborhood. Yeah. Like you go from out of yeah. the suburbs right into this scrubby kind of desert. And I'm not sure it had to have been trick photography, I guess, but that's the moment that actually freaks me out the most. Like, Oh shit, we're in the desert now, mm-hmm. even though we were just in cozy suburbia a few moments before. That desolation is definitely something that they really capture in this film that they don't really do to a great effect. in the one that they actually need to have sort of a desolation um, atmosphere, which is like part six. But I agree, Dan, like that, that isolation effect of where they are and that and like paired with again, like that this like lingering notion that it's fucking boiling and hot is just something that really doesn't that doesn't stick in my craw right like god i think i might have to go with the the melting bedroom too though mm-hmm. or just that whole all the stuff that that's involved with jesse's house or should we say nancy's house or i guess freddie's house at this point who knows like i know right like the exploratory nature that he has in his own home this new home is really just affecting and i still love that shot where he just opens the door and he's just you just see the simple shadow down there because as a, if you just put yourself in his shoes there like that is such a terrifying notion to be like there's something in my house that's like literally right downstairs and the fact that he closes the door immediately and then he's already at the door is so creepy too joe what are your thoughts on your favorite nightmare or what's the best nightmare uh yeah it is a little difficult to suss out what's real and what's not i I think for this particular film, the most memorable one to me is his shower sequence where he sees the coach get Mm. flogged. Um, Again, I would caution as to whether or not it's a real nightmare, but I think it's got some nightmarish imagery. I do like the idea of the skipping ropes tying around the coach's wrists and legs and propping him up. I think that's a fun effect. The other one is a tiny one, but it's the one where he sneaks into his sister's room and then he tucks her in and discovers that he's wearing the glove. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because it's very brief, but it seems... Like, to me, that's a good example of the waking nightmare imagery that this film is trying to go for. And I mean, even though the sister's really not too much of a character in the film, it's 
the threat that he could actually murder his own sister and not be able to control himself is, I think, pretty frightening. Yeah, it's like this this notion that he's out of control that ups the stakes for me, for sure. Because like, you never really get that feeling with Nancy. Like, you get the feeling that that Freddie's inescapable, but she's always in control. Whereas, like, I don't mm-hmm. think like Jesse's the type that is going to be able to set up like you know the Kevin McAllister style like Home Alone setup at the end that you get in Nightmare One. Like, I just don't even think Jesse's even afforded that opportunity because he has no agency over his own body. And for me, that's there's like nothing scarier than that. That they don't really ever revisit again in this series. They just never do that. Like, if Freddie can do this, like, why doesn't he just? I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, <should laughs> Wait we, for uh, the inevitable reboot. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> well, let's take some hypnosilm and offer our, our final thoughts. It's too late, Kruger. I know the secret now. This is just a dream. You're not alive. This whole thing is just a dream. I want my mother and friend again. What? I take back every bit of energy I gave you. You're nothing. I think that the second film in this franchise is daring. It doesn't always make sense and it doesn't always execute everything flawlessly. But I do think that we should applaud the film for trying some different things. And when the film works, I think it's actually quite successful. Mm-hmm. How many uh, Freddy Claws do you give it? This is a solid three out of five for me. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Who wants to go next? Dan, you can go. Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, it's no secret how we all feel about it. I think after talking about all this, but yeah, the, I think, I think given all the context and like the sexuality stuff, I admire it for its difference. I don't think it quite succeeds on that end, but I do think it succeeds just as a as a body horror horror movie as a sequel that sort of stands out from the rest of the pack in in the Nightmare series, just for like the nature of the scares and what the plot is. Um, so although it is flawed, I will also go with three, uh, I almost said white wed, Freddy Claws, but uh, three, three, three Freddy Claws from his glove. And uh, I'm actually right on with you guys. I'm at three Freddy Claws out of five. I think, honestly, my opinion, weirdly enough, lines up exactly with Joe's. Like, I... I think that when it does something different, it does work really well. There are some, you know, politics in play that I don't think are very, like it definitely taints the movie. Like when you know about the history mm-hmm. of it, but oh, totally. as a sequel, it's, you know, it dared to be different. And the fact that it did make more money than the original is a little shocking to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, I really like all the effects. I do like Mark Patton as Jesse. I like Kim Myers. I just wish Lisa was a better written character. But um, I mean, I rank this above five and six. I probably put it on par with four because I know some people love four, but I have a lot of issues with four in general. So, I mean, yeah, it's a three out of five for me. I think I'm right there with you all. Three out of five is still great, especially for an entry yeah. where it's a polarizing entry. What I do applaud is something I've been harping on this entire time on this episode is just the darkness that's around this, this like this lingering notion that not only again, just the heat, but 
it's inescapable. There's the dread that to this film that I don't feel the other movies capture. I always feel that there's a sense of hope in every film, even down to the original one. There's always this, this sense that, yeah, you can defeat Freddy. You can always, you know, you can conquer your own fears. And with this one, I don't get that sense. I think it's like, this is this inescapable dread, probably because of the themes that are being explored. They're coming from within Jesse. And for me, that's, that's, that's a very terrifying um, notion. And I think that had the series taken on a more intimate approach with regards to their characters, as opposed to doing sort of like a NBA all-star game <laughs> that Dream Warriors is going to introduce in the next one, which mind you, again, I love Dream Warriors, but mm-hmm. I just, I just love how this is a curveball. Uh, so for me, yeah, three out of uh, five, I believe we're, we're going with. So yeah, mm-hmm. three. So that makes it a three. That's, I think we're all on the same page here. So all of us. Yep. It's, uh, it's, <laughs> Pretty great. That pretty doesn't great. happen often, yeah. A lot of no. times it's different uh, different rings, I think. But I thought this episode was a lot of fun. Um, Trace, Joe, where can our listeners find you? Uh, our listeners can find us on Twitter. Uh, my username is at Trace Thurman. Mine is at B Stole My Remote. And uh, you can download and subscribe to the Horror Queers podcast on pretty much any podcasting uh podcatcher i guess uh itunes stitcher tune in uh, we're on spotify so pretty much anywhere just search for horror queers and if there's any other nightmare entries that you would like to join on in the future please let us know we are uh we've we've got a lot of time here at our airbnb on elm street <laughs> and we're welcoming a lot of friends we're cooking up some uh some great treats and uh we got a lot of movies to discuss you know, we got Dream Warriors next month, and after that, uh, it, we, we we find and discover a new warrior that I'm uh, very excited to talk about because she is my favorite character in the franchise, and I'm hoping that we can talk to her also. So, you know, Trace Joe, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, would love to have you in the future for sure. Thank you for having us. And yeah, th- our pleasure. And thanks, Dan, for coming back, the comeback kid. You missed out on uh, the last uh, two Halloween entries also. So I know, um, man. I mean, I was there for the retrospective, but I didn't get to share any of my hot takes about the zombie universe. I know. Um, You're a little sympathetic for him. So. Well, yeah, two. I, I have some respect for two. Um, and I think I don't think one's as bad as everyone thinks it is. But, I mean, they're... I mean, they're, they're pretty bad still. No, they're, <laughs> they're, a, they're a total joy to watch. Well, Dan, I'm sure we're going to have you on future entries. Until then, whatever you do, don't, don't, don't fall, fall asleep. asleep.